everyone. Welcome to the Mindshot Podcast, the true crime. This is episode 10 of the Moore Murray case. Yeah, we've done 10? Yeah, this is the 10th episode. And this is Rook Davis. Maxwell Powers. And your host, Bruce McGuire. Hey, love us. For double digits, we are going to do a complete breakdown of the case from A to Z. That works out really well. Our 10th one has a complete breakdown. I like that. (laughs) And so I'm going to go over two really good articles. One of them is the special report by uh, Mary Beth Conway, which is one of the most in-depth reports on the Mormon case. And it was originally published in the Hanson Express June 21st, 2007. But I'm going to start by reading another article published September 22nd, 2015 by Chris Peake called And Then She Was Gone. And the purpose of this exercise is to kind of, it's kind of like a broken telephone type situation where we're going to see how much the case has changed and the perception of the case over, you know, the 14 years. I wasn't so frustrated in the beginning. That's how it's changed. In the beginning, I thought somebody was telling the truth. And now that everybody's lying, it's really frustrating. Well, we're going to look at how, like, the (laughs) media and news reports have changed and how assumptions were made and then restated as facts. And and whether that gets, you know, how how that gets us farther and farther from the truth. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff, whether it even matters, because if the truth is something completely else that we don't even know about, does it even matter? White slavery kidnapping ring. <laughs> so the more recent article, and then she was gone. DW these. Mora couldn't have called AAA because there was no cell phone service up there in 2004. And the reason why I say that with such confidence is that there is no cell phone service up there in 2015. Or today, or today in 2018. Sometime after 7 p.m. on a 20-degree New England night in February 2004, 21-year-old Maura Murray, a former high school track star and later ex-cadet from West Point, crashed her vehicle on a rural stretch of road on Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire, a sleepy Rockwellian New England town tucked neatly in between Vermont and New Hampshire's western edge of the White Mountains. Her vehicle slid, spun, then came to a stop facing the wrong way on the opposite side of the road. The last person believed to have contact with Mora was a local school bus driver, a large-bellied, gregarious <laughs> man by the name of Butch Atwood. Atwood, returning home from work, saw Mora Murray's car facing west in the eastbound lane of Route 112. As he approached, Atwood noticed Mora's car resting with the headlights off and without hazards flashing. Atwood later told police that it seemed to him that the driver, presumably Mora, Interesting. Presumably, Presumably well, yeah. Was in, tra- was in trying to bring attention to herself, something you would probably want to do in such a remote area. Because she was waiting for somebody. Especially on a cold New Hampshire night. Atwood said he pulled over and asked Maura if she needed for him to call 911. She didn't, she said, indicated that she had already called for help and that a second phone call wasn't needed. But Lance Reinsteerna, who co-hosts the popular Missing Maura Murray podcast with friend Tim Pillary, both of whom have visited the area several times, say that Maura couldn't have called AAA because there was no cell phone service up there in 2004. And the reason why I say that with such confidence is that there is no cell phone service up there in 2015. Okay, but now, the, the people that live in the house, they said that they had gone out and then come back, right? They were outside. What if she had gone to the no, house? No, no, no. What do you mean? 
What if she'd gone the to Westmans? a house? What if she'd gone to no, a house they and maintain, called? No, they maintained they never went outside. Yeah, but we saw someone saw them go out. Well, yes, one of the other witnesses said they went outside, even though they didn't see Yeah, that. so what if, they, Cecil Smith. what if they went out, and they said, Honey, do you need something? And she went in, made a call, and came back. Or she told them to call somebody. Call the guy in the red truck, and she waited in her car. I think, I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure the Marats saw her the whole time. Or the, the driver. Mm -hmm. And they would have seen if she went up to the house or not. Yeah, but they saw someone in the passenger seat smoking a cigarette. The Westmans. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, So what if they just assume that's the person? Because whoever's in the passenger seat... Right. What if she went up and made a call and came back? And they're waiting for the person in the red truck. But how would no one have seen her? Because you got Butch on <laughs> the one side. Because they're lying. <laughs> Alright. Because why else would she be in the car with the lights off calm? I don't know if she was like even up there. there she wasn't even up All there. Right. Whoever was in the car. <laughs> Despite the confusion of whether or not Maura called for help, her cell phone records indicate that the last phone number she dialed was made hours before the crash. Murray very well could have attempted to call 911 or AAA for help, as she told Atwood she did, and the call just never connected, therefore not making it into a cell phone record. Or she could have been pur purposely trying to get rid of Atwood. But Atwood didn't give up so easily. Living within sight of the crash, he offered Murray a ride back to his house where he lived with his mother and his common-law wife. Again, she declined, he drove away, and then she was gone. I didn't know he lived with his mother. His mother's there? Yeah. Is she dead? I'm not sure. I think she moved back. Didn't she move back to Massachusetts? I thought that was the, the common-law wife. The common-law no, wife that was, still there? I think that was his mom. Okay. Because I think the whole reason he moved to Florida was for his mom. Because his okay. mom wanted warm away. And now he's dead. Yes, and then she moved. I think she moved back before he died, though. Yeah. That's, oh, my God! <laughs> That's confusing. The details surrounding the car accident, specifically what happened in the minutes before and the hours after, are surrounded with what-ifs and speculations. There were but few markings surrounding the crash site that would lead investigators and search dogs to a possible direction as to where Mora may have gone in the minutes following the crash. Initially, New Hampshire State Police investigators thought Murray had hit a nearby tree, but two accident reconstruction teams, including one completed by re retired Massachusetts State Police Officer Daniel Parka, determined that Mora's car never hit a tree and that the damage was most likely caused by her driving into a snowbank. Dick Guy, one of the responding EMTs at the scene of the accident, mentioned in an internal memo that everything about the scene of the accident was weird. If she had just lost control of the car coming around that corner, she would have impacted the north side of the curve. She didn't. She clipped the corner. She steered the snowbank clean off and continued on to the other side where it turned the car around. To me, I'd say the car stalled and she was trying to regain control as she came to the turn. All right, and wasn't there damage to the bumper like a foot up? Like she, yeah. Like she had hit something you know, steel, like another car bumper or, or a person or a guardrail or a person or a person. Yeah. But wasn't yeah. it, was it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But a person, wouldn't that be hit like this? And I, wasn't it? Well, I think it was, a, there were several, damn, it could have been a person. And then they speculated that it could have hit something else yeah, after, yeah. after veering out of the way of a person, but not, not a snowbank. No, or, or, or that a tree. tree. Yes, yeah. correct. Yeah. Anything but that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Records at West Point are kept private until the death of a cadet. So although we don't know a whole lot about the circumstances surrounding Murray's exit from the military academy, we do know that in July of 2001, Murray was caught stealing makeup from the commissary... <laughs> 
at Fort Knox during a training trip. Her oh roommate at West Point, Megan Sawyer, who was next to Mora when she was caught, told author James Renner what Murray was like during their time at West Point. You could tell there were inner demons. She seemed sad. She had issues with bulimia. If she wanted to make up another life, she could do it. If she wanted to disappear, she could. I believe she's alive. It's just a feeling I've always had. Mm. Now, again, we talked about this before in the James Renner episode. Mm. Like, if everybody's telling him this, he would have no choice but to form that theory, right? Supposedly. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. yeah. Unless he made that up. Can we verify that she really... Can somebody else verify that she really did say this? That's the other thing with Renner. If he made up half of this stuff, which I'm not saying he did, but it's kind of hard to say whether he did or didn't if he's the only source for this stuff. But well, and you know, so and, and again with the the whole father and athlete, if you're if you're if you've been trained to be an athlete by a parent, they manifest eating disorders more common than other high level athletes because the, they don't want to disappoint their parents. So I could see her being bulimic or anorexic to control her weight so that she could be a champion and not let her father down. Before she was gone. There are copious, incomplete, and patchy details about the days leading up to Mara's disappearance. Details that include a hit-and-run accident, a mysterious seven-minute phone call, a meltdown at work, and sketchy internet searches found on Mora's laptop the day she went missing. Searches for hotels sketchy. All right. and directions to Burlington, Vermont were found in her car. One search on her computer hinted that she may have been pregnant. Oh, boy. They're, no, wait, no, they're referring to the search on alcohol on a fetus, which is actually a common homework assignment. No, no, so, I know, I yeah. know, but let, let's just string it together for a quick second. So if, if she was pregnant and she told her father and her father didn't accept it and got into a terrible fight and said bad things to her for getting pregnant, then he would release later, I'm sorry, I said whatever I said, it's me, you can talk to me, we can work this out. So you think that's what happened? Well, I'm, I'm just saying there's, yeah. there's some evidence. There's Maxwell? Some, there's some evidence there. I'm just connecting from yeah. our last one, from number for some, nine. For some reason, I just find that highly unlikely. I well, can't no, no, explain I'm, why. Yeah, but, but I'm, all I'm doing is trying to decipher his, it's me, you can talk to but me. But can't that just be explained by he got really mad that you got into a car accident? I don't think out. so, because I think he would have said, you know, I'm sorry. Look, the car is just a car. You wrecked the car. He, he was being all cloak and dagger, quiet, and he didn't yeah. want to say what he was upset about or what the fight was about. If it was the car, wouldn't he just say, look, you fucked up my car, I forgive you, I get a new car. Instead, he's all... Murray had an ongoing affair with a track and field coach at UMass, Hussein Baghdadi, who has admitted to the affair. Mora all but emptied her bank account the day she vanished, evidenced by an ATM video that the police have said... We believe it was more in the video, but have never released it to the public. Now we have it, but this is back in 2015. Yeah, yeah. It's important to note that at the time of her disappearance, Moore was on probation at UMass after she was caught stealing a student's credit card and buying food with it. Officially, it was um, improper use of a credit card under $250. Was it pizza? Yeah. I know. Yeah, it was pizza. And then there is also the question of it. Well, the pizza place where she knew somebody worked making yes. after-hour phone calls and possibly let them borrow a car, which hit which hit, hit in the run of Vassy and caused all this to happen. Yeah, owned by the same people that possibly. owned the art gallery yeah. that girlfriend worked in. Yeah, <laughs> and and the guy that got hit by the hit and run and in the car <laughs> shop where they wanted to repair the vehicle, which also happened to be where they did where someone who worked did the reconstruction <laughs> on the accident scene. Yes. Yeah. And had seen both vehicles. Yes, that's very sketchy. Yes. All right. <laughs> now we got that clear. Yeah. This is a good. This is a good podcast. People are going to replay this part over and over. Again. <laughs>
And then there is also the question of a hasty, hasty withdrawal of $4,000 in cash by Morris' father, Fred, who withdrew it out of several different ATMs two days before her disappearance, only to drive 30 miles from his work in Connecticut to visit her at school the day after a snowstorm that was so bad all activities at the college were canceled. Damn. I think that was Friday. Abortion. Oh, my God. The Thursday and Friday before she was gone. At 7 p.m. on Thursday, February 5th, Maura Murray sat down at her desk in the Melville Dormitory building at UMass Amherst. It was your typical job that every college kid had to earn some extra beer money for the weekend. She helped staff at the front desk for students getting in and out of the dorms. The details that follow are what investigators, armchair detectives, and podcasters have argued over for years. The night for Maura begins with a flurry of cell phone activity. At 7.17 p.m., Maura makes a 20-minute call to her boyfriend, Billy Roush. She called him again at 9.56 p.m. for six minutes. Like, like, all right, let me ask a question. How long was she going out with Billy Roush? I believe since West Point, I think. So... Two years? How many other people was she having affairs with while she was still going out with Billy? She had the, the track coach yeah, but supposedly, while she was going out with Billy? Possibly not, though. If she was taking a break with Billy, I forget where. Well, that's what I mean. Taking, well, was she taking breaks, or did he know she was taking breaks? I think, I think they all knew, because there was some big deal at it. Because then she stopped seeing the assistant track coach to go back to Billy. Oh, good lord! I think that's what it was. Eight minutes later, at 10:10 p.m., Maura calls her older sister Kathleen. According to her sister, who later told police, the phone call between the two sisters was completely normal and nothing out of the ordinary. That call lasted 28 minutes, ending at 10:38 p.m. 90 minutes later, just after midnight, Patrick Bassey, an econ student set to graduate in just a few months, was struck by what police have determined was a hit and run with injuries to one side of his body consistent with being hit by a moving vehicle. At 12.07 a.m., Maura made a seven-minute phone call to her boyfriend, Billy Roush. 13 minutes after that call ended at 12.20 a.m., Bassey is found by police at the intersection of Triangle and Mattoon Street, 0.9 miles from where Mora worked, oh, less than a mile. Yeah. Around 1 a.m., Mora has what followers of the case have come to know as the breakdown at work. Mm-hmm. An anxiety attack apparently so bad that our supervisor, Karen Mayotte, was forced to relieve Mora of her shift five minutes early. According to Mayotte and other co-workers, Mora stood blankly past the check-in desk uttering the same two words over and over my sister my sister also that information seems conflicting too because i i think they're done at 12 a.m is where they said the security desk was open the, the building was open till. so i don't know what's going on there now now what what if she's traumatized from hitting somebody and she's just calling for her sister yes, because that's, that's who, possible because that's who she like her safety blanket my sister my that's sister I don't know what's all this shady stuff with the with the term because if her shift ended at 12 yeah 45 minutes early at 1 1 a.m.? In an email to author James Renner, Mayotte recounts in detail what happened that night. That Thursday night, the receptionist had to work until 1.45 a.m., 2.45 on Fridays and Saturdays. Hmm. After I visited the other... Which is strange, because the dorm... If the dorm closes at 12, why do they work until 1.45 a.m.? Somebody's lying. After I visited the other areas of campus, when I got to Southwest... What if students can still come in but no visitors? But then... uh, And so so the guard's still there just for students. Because I know with our dorm, 
there was a guard there 24 hours, but there were times where okay. you couldn't bring right. anybody else in. I'm just saying. After, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just after, after I visited the other areas of campus, when I got to Southwest, I met up with the other co-workers at the eatery in Southwest. I didn't eat, but on another area, supervisor told me that Maura was upset and that I should go check on her. At that point, I did. One of them said, something's up with Maura. She had been crying. I don't know how to explain it. She was just completely zoned out. No reaction at all. After dismissing Maura of her duties, the two walked back to Maura's dorm room, which was just a short walk away. Mayotte would never see Mora again. Wow. The Saturday before she was gone. Fred Murray has maintained throughout the years that the $4,000 he withdrew from his bank account on Saturday before his daughter went missing was to use to buy Mora a new car. The two supposedly went car shopping in the Amherst area that Saturday morning despite nearby car dealerships being unable to verify that the two ever visited that day. Oh, somebody actually went around to him? Oh, wait, wait, clarify for, for our listeners. Who, what car did the father have and what car did Maura have and what did she end up with? So, she... So Maura had the Saturn that didn't work well. Yes. And what it, and she had borrowed her father's car yeah, and crashed... Yeah, a newer car. Yeah. yeah, and crashed that. Yes. And the car that disappeared was the Saturn, or right. the car that car, w- had the Saturn. accident was the Saturn that had the rag stuffed in the tailpipe. In New Hampshire, yes. And that was after she had already damaged her father's car. car. Yes. Now, they went to buy her another car and didn't. Because supposedly the Saturn was in bad condition. Yeah. But it was in good enough condition to get all the way up into that. Who knows? Now, check this out. To friends, Mora's 96 Saturn was in good condition. Good in the sense that friends never heard her complaining about the car. Good in the sense that it made it 136 yeah. miles from UMass <laughs> to Haverhill, New Hampshire in the middle of winter. Mm-hmm. But according to Fred Murray, it wasn't running that good, which is why somebody needed to stick a rag in the exhaust, which police found when searching Maura's car after she went missing. Later that Saturday, now joined by Maura's best friend, Kate Markopoulos, the three walk into the Amherst Brewing Company for an early dinner. One topic that was omitted from conversation, however was car shopping. According to Kate, it was never mentioned. Hmm, another article where, where Kate talked to somebody about something mm-hmm. before she got tied up. Yep. After dinner, Fred drove Maura and Kate to the liquor store to purchase alcohol for a party that the two girls were planning on attending that night. Maura then dropped her father off at a nearby motel, taking her father's new Toyota Corolla to the party. Okay, but wait, let's let's just uh, revisit uh, for a second. An overbearing, controlling father I don't think would buy alcohol for his daughter to go to a party. Or let her borrow a brand new car. <laughs> yeah, after she wrecked the last one. Well, what do you mean wrecked? Oh, this was before oh, the wreck. That's the one she wrecked. Yeah, that was the yeah, time yeah, she borrowed. Right, right. Yeah, 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 gotcha. But even still, and you, yeah, yeah. you don't trust a 21-year-old if you're... Well, and, 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 and if you're overbearing and controlling, you do not take... You do not buy alcohol yeah. for your daughter to go to yeah. a party because... Yeah. The last thing you want is what happens at parties with alcohol. Here's it. Folks following the case are still confused as to why Mora didn't take her own car, knowing she lived within walking distance from the party. That is strange. I never considered that. Oh, unless the car wasn't wasn't working at all. I didn't want her to drive it at all. What what if what if she was planning on leaving and she wanted to leave with a newer car? And then she wrecked the car. Before and, she had a chance to do that, that's and, messed up. No, but seriously, think about yeah. it. That's what that would explain why she took the car. Yeah, because she wanted a new car because it's winter and she's planning on getting the hell out of Dodge. The party that night has always held a Zapruder-esque quality to it. 
meaning it has been discussed, analyzed, and dissected over the past 10 years ad nauseum because so much about the party is still unknown about what actually happened that night. According to journalist James Renner, who spoke to Kate Markopoulos, the friend Mora arrived with, the party was standing room only. But Clint Harding, who has also investigated the case, reported that the party was actually quite small. Before I forget, though, Mora had a roommate. We discussed this before, remember? I don't know if, I don't even remember if her name, I think, I'm not sure if her name was ever even revealed, and how come nobody ever talked to her? I, I don't even remember the roommate, I just remember uh, the one she borrowed the clothes from, or borrowed That was the, just a friend. Yeah, that was yeah, just a friend, yeah. and she returned them, and the friend Well, the other thing suspicious about that, why is she borrowing scrubs she should have her own? She's a nursing student. Yeah. That whole story is kind of suspect. And, and the, it's almost like a red herring to yeah. to place her there when she wasn't there. And nobody saw She Nobody even saw her. That's Somebody what I'm saying. Return yeah, it's, it's but it's why like didn't she have her own? Anyway. Unless it's a lie. All right. No, yeah. So, okay. just to Just to place her there to fit a particular time frame. Okay. The only widely accepted fact is that the party took place in Mora's friend's dorm room, Sarah Alfieri, who worked with Mora at her second job at an art gallery on campus. Owned by... Possibly, possibly not. I thought they, I thought they did own that. No, I couldn't find it again. Oh, but, but you had found it once. That was a rumor. Oh, right. There was I didn't. There was no deed with the guy's name on it. Witness statements, including statements made by Kate and Sarah, have always been peppered with misremembers and I don't knows, including the cryptic email sent to James Renner from Kate. I know you'd really like the names of the people that were at that party. It's just not going to happen. I don't remember. I couldn't help them then. And furthermore, I didn't see many of them ever again. Did she stop going to school there? Like, I what? don't know. Both Mora and Kate left the party around 2.30 a.m. supposedly to go return Fred's car. Both were walked out of the party by an unknown male. Sarah Alfieri's only interview to the media was with Seventeen Magazine. In it, she mentions this party, but makes contradictions to what she had previously told police and James Renner from Seventeen. About an hour later, Moore arrived at her friend Sarah Alfieri's dorm to hang out. For the next three hours, Moore, Sarah, and a couple of friends sat around talking and listening to music while drinking Sky Blue Malt, mixed with a little bit of wine. At 2.30 a.m., Moore left Sarah's room, telling everybody she was going to go upstairs to her room. But Mora couldn't have gone upstairs to her room because Sarah lived in Coolidge Hall while Mora lived in across the way in Kennedy. That's actually false because even though it was a separate building, it was still upstairs. Okay. So you had to go upstairs, so I guess he got the part that wrong. The day before she was gone. An hour after leaving the party at UMass, Mora got into her father's car alone and at 3.33 a.m., Interesting number. Mm-hmm. Early Sunday morning. Yeah, for six, six, six. <laughs> Hadley police re- police receives a phone call from the UMass campus police about a car crash involving Mora, who crashed her father's vehicle into a T junction on Route 9 in Hadley, Massachusetts, just outside the perimeter of the U- UMass campus proper. The crash was serious enough to have reportedly caused $8,000 in damage, so much damage that the vehicle was considered totaled by the insurance company. But Mora wasn't arrested or charged with any crime. Instead, the car was towed by AAA at 4.29 a.m., with Mora hitching a ride with a tow truck driver to the Quality Inn, where she would arrive at 4.45 a.m. and spend the rest of the morning in her father's motel room. But it's unsure how Mora actually got into the motel room. Lance Rianstierna, co-host of the Missing Mora Murray podcast, thinks that Mora ended up sleeping on the couch in the lobby of the motel, eventually being led into her father's room by the manager on duty. Her 
Father Fred has said to police that he never heard Mora come in and didn't know she was there until he woke up hours later. At 5.38 a.m., though, Mora called her boyfriend, Billy, using her father's phone. Mm. And do we even know she really got her phone back? That's still a mysterious thing from the party. Because she apparently didn't have her phone. She left it at Sarah's. Which, again, would lead to something messed up happened to the party, so she left without her phone. Yeah, she left quick and then ran outside and got in a car accident. It seems like she or she was drunk and she forgot her phone. Yeah, and, and nothing happened. The day she was gone. In the overnight hours leading into Monday morning, Mora used her computer around 4 a.m., according to New Hampshire State Police Lieutenant John Scarenza, to make several questionable internet searches. Two were for driving directions to the Berkshires and Burlington, Vermont. The other search was about the effects of excessive drinking on an unborn baby, fueling speculation that she may have been pregnant at the time of her disappearance. At 12.55 p.m. on Monday, Mora calls Linda Salamone, the owner of a condo in North Conway, New Hampshire, 45 miles east of where her car would end up crashing. Linda Salamone was not interviewed by police investigators. An hour later, she sends her boyfriend Billy an email. I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promised to call you today, though. Love you, stud. Oh, At approximately 1.13 p.m., Mora calls a classmate and leaves a voicemail. She then calls 1-800-GHOSTO at 2.05 p.m., but the resort's phones were down, so she was only able to listen to pre-recorded messages about lodging. About an hour and 20 minutes after emailing him, Mora makes a one-minute phone call to her boyfriend, Billy, which goes directly to voicemail, because at this exact moment, Billy is on the phone calling Mora's friend, Kate Markopoulos. <laughs> Instead of her? Immediately after, Billy makes three return phone calls to Mora. Three, four, and six minutes later, all are unanswered by Mora. Something's going on. At 3.45 p.m., Mora emails her professors and work supervisors saying that due to a death in the family, she'll be missing the upcoming week of class and work. Family members have confirmed that there was never a death in the family. Okay, but wait, 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 now, what if this is a cover? Because that sounds a little Robert Durstish. You know how, yeah. how he called the... the, yes. the the yes. end of the school yes. just to cover like if someone's already trying to do a cover yes because they, they know she's going to be missing and so they don't want anybody looking for her for a couple days yes sometimes just before 4pm Mora withdraws $280 from an ATM and surveillance video confirms that she's alone shortly but, after yeah, but does it I don't know because it's sure, like yeah. edited possibly possibly shortly after Mora is seen by a dorm mate leaving UMass for the last time I never heard that before yeah. This is the first time okay. I've ever I've ever heard anything Someone about that. Someone saw her leave? Yeah, who's the doormate? Unnamed in this article. She is later seen purchasing the box of Franzia wine that would later be found in the car, along with a bottle of Kahlua and Bailey's. Both would be missing from a car. I think there is footage from a, from a liquor store where there's... Obviously, it hasn't been released. Her last phone call was made at 4.37 p.m. to her dorm room. That was the last outgoing call made on her cell phone. It's assumed that Mora then started out on Route 91 North as it's the only main highway that's both within a few minutes of UMass and runs directly north-south into southern New Hampshire. The last activity on Mora's cell phone was around 5 p.m. when somebody called her. A cell phone ping confirming that the call came from 20 miles of Londonderry, New Hampshire, a town just north of the New Hampshire-Massachusetts border. We need to go to New Hampshire. Okay. I, I, would, I would really like to. You want to see the crash site? No, I want to see everything. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, ser yeah. I'm serious. All right. You know, Maxwell? Like, no, because I'd like to see in we gotta context. Go what, we got to go make a visit to the Jamesons, too. Yeah, because, well, well, yeah, we can do this one first. Yeah, right. Baby steps. Because I would really well, like to see. That's all the way on the East Coast, though. Where, we got to get yeah, out. No, where, the, where the accident is and then the parks. 
and a backpack. Yeah. All right. And but summer out, summer preferably. Investigate. <laughs> don't you want to do it at the exact time she went? No. Okay. Because no. then to we get the right they, conditions. No, no. Investigators have speculated that the person calling Mora was perhaps traveling on Route 93 North, the oh. main interstate running from Boston to northern New Hampshire, before connecting onto Route 91 and heading into Canada. Coincidentally, it takes a couple hours to drive from Londonderry to ha Haverhill, New Hampshire, where Mora crashed, and the cell phone ping was approximately two hours prior to the accident, with Mora vanishing some 20 minutes after the crash. Yeah, but that could be a reason why she wanted the new car and not an mm. older car if she's going to go all the way to Canada. At 7.05 p.m., two people listening to police scanners hear a call about a car driving off the road on Swiftwater Road, not Route 112, and that the driver left the scene in a private vehicle. That scan, for whatever reason, never made it into the official police log of the Drafton County Sheriff Department. No. I mean, they don't say that it was a red truck. No, no, it could have been Mora. No, I thought it uh, left in another vehicle. She crashed. Her own vehicle. It doesn't say that it just left in a private vehicle. That oh, could have been oh, the vehicle oh, that was crashed. Oh, oh, oh. At 7 p.m., Witness A is getting ready for their final appointment of the day. Only the appointment no-shows. After waiting for an extra 10 minutes at 7.10 p.m., Witness A leaves work and starts driving home by traveling east on Swiftwater Road. It's on this road that when Witness A notices a police SUV approaching from behind with its lights flashing, eventually the SUV overtakes and passes the vehicle. When it does, Witness A notices the markings 001 on the back of the SUV. Oh, yeah, but wait a second. I'm, I'm saying that... Wait, they said there was a crash and that the driver left in a private vehicle. Yeah. Leaving the car there. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Was the how the private vehicle could have been a red truck cuz she left oh. her car there. What if the red truck was going with her the whole time? She crashes, she gets out, gets in that and they leave together. But then how does her the Saturn end up on the, at yeah, but, the but, final uh, crash site? Yeah, but that's not the final crash site. That's a, oh, that's the first one that... That's 40 that, minutes earlier. Oh, that's the 40-minute earlier one? They were, yeah, so... Yeah, and, and, and that might not... That may or may not be Chief Williams driving drunk and yeah, switching vehicles. Because yeah. they probably would have mentioned it as a police officer, so that may not be that. But how do we know that... We don't know anything. But what if they moved the vehicle? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know anything. You know what I mean? What if, because what if the second crash wasn't a crash because they put it there? Oh, that's that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, what yeah, if they yeah. moved it, and that's why? Because remember, who was it? The officer who said it looked weird because it just yeah. shaved off, and yeah. and it didn't seem correct. What, what, there, if, yeah. what, what if what if the tow what if someone towed it there and just let it slide? It's possible. All right, all right, go on. Just posing. Yeah. All right. Soon after, Witness A takes a right-hand turn onto Route 112 and again, minutes later, is overtaken and passed by the same police SUV with its lights on and with the marking 001. Eventually, Witness A reaches the site of the accident and sees the, name police S sees the same police SUV parked nose-to-nose -nose with a dark-colored car. Morris Saturn was dark green. Witness A's story has been corroborated over several interviews with the Murray family and with the guys from the Missing Mara Murray podcast, each time saying the same thing. Okay, so this is witness B. At 7.20 p.m., Susan Champy leave, leaves work at the Loon Mountain Club, but is 10 minutes behind schedule. Her drive home, which will take her down Route 112, will take 30 minutes. 
22 minutes after two witnesses overheard scanner reports of a car driving off the road and the driver leaving in a private vehicle, the first 911 call was made by Faith Westman at 7.27 p.m., a nearby neighbor, after she heard what sounded like a car crash. Atwood, the bus driver, would arrive soon after that first 911 call was placed. His interaction with Murray would last for a few minutes, and Atwood then returned home, where his common-law wife would then call police at 7.43 p.m. Mm. Investigators would administer two polygraph tests to Atwood throughout the investigation. The first, it was inconclusive. The second, he passed. I actually read somewhere there might have been three tests. Well, and yeah, he yeah, but, failed one, yeah, but, but, it, but he, pra he had a practice session. Well, he also had a heart condition, so mm. the whole thing was thrown out because his baseline is yeah, off yeah, because yeah. of his heart condition. Yeah. At 7.46 p.m., police cruiser 002 arrives at the scene. That car was driven by Officer Cecil Smith. Do you know if you're having Whoa, a... whoa, whoa, whoa. Check this. So this is before the pod... This is before the action show. Faith Westman and Butch Atwood emphatically state that it was a cruiser that arrived on the scene at 7.46 p.m. and not the SUV marked 001 that passed Witness A twice and was seen being nose-to-nose -nose with Morris Carr. So the Westmans were interviewed and they said it wasn't the SUV. And Very interesting. And they're the ones who, who went out who said later they didn't go out. We don't know that. Oh, Marat was the only guy. Yeah, but I'm just saying. Yeah. The, theoretically, yes. Theoretically, yes. They're, the yes. One, yeah, yes. they're the ones that are being called in the question. Yep. That's what Continuing I mean. her drive, Susan Champy would eventually reach the crash site on Route 112 around 7.50 p.m. When she does, she notices a police car with markings 002. And two bystanders, bystanders alongside Mora's car. It is still unclear who Champy saw that night. It could have been the Westmans. Oh, oh yeah. And then yeah. that would match up with the Marat. Statement. Theoretically. Yeah, theoretically. At Everything is at 7.54 p.m., like Officer yes. Smith puts out a be-on-the-lookout request for a female about 5'7 on foot. Wow. How did know it was a female? How did well, she was 5'7? Because he, he read Because uh, Butch Atwood has, like, very good height-judging yeah. abilities, down to the inch. While inspecting Mora's car, Officer Smith noticed that the doors to Mora's car were all locked. Wait, wait, one second. If the police had stopped her earlier, say she was there for a couple yeah. minutes, and they said, let me see your license, and she yes. let them see yeah, it, yeah. her height would be on yep. it, and a girl would be on it. Yep. So then, if she disappeared later, it'd be like, oh, look for a girl, 5'7". Yep. Not to mention, if they ran her through the system yeah, already, yeah. they would have the yeah. Even her license plate. Yep. yep. I was stupid. Yep. While inspecting Mora's car, Officer Smith noticed that the doors to Mora's car were all locked. The keys were taken. The car had a near full tank of gas. That's something we didn't really talk about that much. How close so. is the nearest gas station? Oh, because so she would, maybe there'd be footage there too. Yeah, that we keep talking about that, but nobody, did nobody ever check? Yeah. The windshield, the windshield had been compromised or cracked with a large spiderweb crack breaking from the inside and on the driver's side indicating contact. But the point of impact on the windshield was too high for it to have been caused by Mora, who at 5'7 was too short and would have been restrained by the seatbelt. What is she wearing a seatbelt? I don't know. Then it the, would box, be higher. the box of Franzia wine was open and partially spilled on the interior of the car. The car was towed by Lavoie's Towing, a local towing company operating in the Haverhill Dartmouth College area. But Mike Lavoie wasn't on call that night for towing. Dick McKean from Northland Towing Woods. Whether it was just a simple mistake of calling the wrong tow operator remains an unknown. But McKean did arrive on the scene and confronted both Mike Lavoie and the <laughs> officers, wondering why he hadn't been called and was now out a tow fee. Lavoie did tow 
Mora's car that night, but it wasn't towed to Lavoie's tow yard. Instead, it was left in the garage of Mike Lavoie's home, where it would sit for four days before Mora's father, Fred, first discovered it on the following Friday. Wow. That's still weird. All this stuff. Well, that's weird. kind of like they're hiding it. Yeah. Oh, Why? This is terrible. Why? Oh. After she was gone, the investigation and search for Maura Murray wouldn't fully be implemented until 36 hours after the crash. DNA samples taken from a nearby home at the time was being rented by a local man known to police to have a violent temper and possibly sex addiction weren't tested for two years. That was In late, for him? Yep. In late 2004, Larry Moulton... Now deceased. I don't think he's deceased. Actually. Yeah, because you remember, yeah, you right, said yeah. to me that he wasn't the last yeah, time right. we, yeah. that it was a They fake. just said, yeah. yeah Gave that's... Fred Murray a bloody knife that belonged to his brother, Claude. <laughs> oh, wait. Is Claude the one not deceased and Larry is deceased? I thought, I thought we found out that they weren't. Yeah, I think they're both still alive. Yeah. Who had a criminal I... record and lived less than a mile from where Mora crashed her car. The knife would eventually make its way to the New Hampshire State Police. When campus police searched her dorm room days later, they found her belongings neatly packed in boxes and all of her wall art had been taken down. Again, unless she hadn't unpacked. Well, what, what month is it? February. So she might have not packed. Because you only get back, like, winter break is all the way to the end of January. So she would be just getting back. Yeah, but she wouldn't. She probably wouldn't have taken all this stuff. You don't take your uh, wall art down. Well, unless you switch dorms. For, what if she switched dorms? We don't know. Yeah. We don't know where she was the previous year. Yeah, but yeah, but this that that this is winter break. This isn't summer break. I know. So she would have moved into her uh, dorm yeah. and then came home for Christmas. Well, who knows? And I don't why know. Why would she take down her wall art? That sounded like she was planning on getting. Ship it to there, me. When I get to where I'm going, ship there have been a me. number of sightings over the years purported to be of Maura Murray, mostly in New England, Eastern Canada region. Okay, so that's that article. So some very interesting mm, information yeah. there, yep. especially coupled with the Austin documentary where they're trying to push the SUV yeah. 001 angle. So that got debunked quick. Yes. Yeah. All right. That's so crazy. now here's the 2007 article, and this one is very, very in depth. It covers everything. And this is still a couple years after, but okay. Three years ago, 21-year-old Maura Murray of Hanson, a talented athlete and nursing student at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, got into her car, drove to the woods of northern New Hampshire, and disappeared. Not a trace of her car has been found since, despite an intensive search and investigation. What happened to Maura Murray? How, after her car skidded into a snowbank on a mild winter night, could she simply disappear? This week, in the first of a four-part report, staff... Writer Mary Beth Conway examines the circumstances surrounding Moore's disappearance and traces her steps from Amherst, Massachusetts to Woodsville, New Hampshire. The story begins in a UMass dormitory. Part 1, The Departure. Thursday, February 5, 2004. It was an overcast night at the University of Massachusetts Amherst campus. Maura Murray, a junior nursing major and dean's list student, was working the campus security desk at the Melville dormitory. Her job was to check identification as students entered the dorm. Maura's shoulder-length brown hair was likely pulled back tightly in a bun as it nearly always was. Friends knew Maura as a highly motivated achiever who could be shy at times but who was also a free spirit. She ran on the college track team and was an excellent athlete who broke her high school record in the two-mile run. During a slow point in her shift around 10.20 p.m., Maura chatted on the phone with her older sister Kathleen. The two were discussing men troubles, specifically Kathleen's tiff with her then-fiancé, now-husband, Tim Carpenter. 
The two sisters talked nearly every day, and this conversation was not unlike any other, Kathleen would later say. Moore was especially close to Kathleen and her older sister, Julie. She also had two brothers, Freddie and Kurt. Mora did not burst into tears right after hanging up on the phone, contrary to some published reports, but she did start crying about three hours later for reasons that remain unclear. Mora was a country was a cross-country star dating to her days at Whitman Hanson High School. Quiet, shy, but fierce on the track is how fellow UMass track team member Nastaran Shams describes her. Mora was comforted by her work supervisor, Karen Mayotte, who walked her back to her single room in the Kennedy dormitory around Oh, so there isn't a roommate. I don't know. I read somewhere there was a roommate. I don't know. Conflicting information. Mora never told Mayotte why she was upset. Supervisors are on a 30-minute rotation, so Mayotte would not have been present for Mora's entire shift. Whatever was bothering Mora, she did not share it with her friends or father, who visited her at UMass on Saturday, February 7th, less than 48 hours later. Growing up, Mora had lived with her mother and Hanson, but she retained an especially close relationship with her father, Fred Murray. When Fred wasn't coaching her in youth sports or attending one of her track meets, he and Mora would go camping or hiking, usually in the mountains of New Hampshire. Fred came to UMass that weekend to help Mora go car shopping. Mora's black 1996 Saturn sedan was in rough shape, running on just three cylinders. Mora drove the Saturn as little as possible. The father and daughter were looking at a three-year-old Geo Prism. She would have had a new car by next week, Fred said later. After a day of car shopping on Saturday, the two had dinner at Amherst Brewing Company on North Pleasant Street in downtown Amherst. Each time Fred visited Mora, their routine including trying another of the many local brew pubs in the area. <laughs> why is there, why is every, every other word is alcohol? Mora's friend, Kate Markopoulos, joined them at the restaurant later that night. After dinner and drinks, Mora's father was ready to head back to the Quality Inn, a motel on Russell Street in neighboring Hadley. What's the second girl's name? Kate Markopoulos, and what's the other friend? Sarah Alfieri. Sarah, okay. Fred offered Mora his new Toyota Corolla to drive for the evening. Mora dropped her father off at the hotel and returned with her friend to UMass. Back on campus, Mora attended a small party in the dorm with Kate and their friends. The girls were chatting and drinking Sky Blue Malt mixed with wine. Friend Sarah Alfieri later said in an interview with Seventeen Magazine, At some point, Mora mentioned that she wanted to return the car to her father that night, which didn't make sense to Kate since it was so late. Mora had been drinking, and her father wasn't expecting the car until the next day. Okay, now, again, it it bothers me that they go small party, and then they go large party, standing room only, shoulder to shoulder. (laughs) Yep, conflicting reports. Around 2.30 a.m., Mora told her friends she was heading home to her dorm room. Instead, she got into her father's car and drove towards his motel. While driving along Route 9 in Hadley, Mora slammed into a guardrail, causing about $8,000 worth of damage to the Toyota. Local police responded to the scene of the accident, but no charges were filed. Mora got a ride back to her father's motel. When Fred Murray learned of the accident, Mora was shaken up and extremely apologetic. She was upset, but it was okay, Fred recalled. If this is the only trouble a kid ever causes, then you're a pretty lucky parent. Just a note on Mora and her boyfriend, Billy Roush. She met her boyfriend, Billy Roush, in the fall of 2001. Okay. So, yeah, because that's what I asked yeah. you. Attending West Point, Mora was following in her sister Julie's footsteps, but later decided military life wasn't for her and transferred to UMass. Despite the distance apart, the couple remained close. Mora grew so you up, agree. <laughs> Mora, Mora grew up in Hanson with her four siblings, Kathleen, Freddie, Curtis, and Julie. She was particularly close to her two sisters, chatting on the phone almost daily. I've never seen that photo before. Mm-hmm. That I guess that that's Fred. 
No, that can't be Fred. No, no, that's her. That must be... Oh, they're babies. So that's probably oh, the no, youngest brother. That's Kurt. No, that's the youngest brother, Kurt. So who's that? I don't know who that is. Because Kurt's only a couple years younger than That's Laura. Maura. That's, that's Kathleen. That's Julie. That can't be the father. No, that's Freddie. That's the older brother. All right, the oldest brother. Gotcha. I so guess that's his kid? son. That's probably his kid. The older brother's Where's kid. At 4.49 on Sunday morning, a little while after the accident, Maura called her boyfriend, Billy Roush, on her father's cell phone. Billy consoled her over the phone, though he would later say that he thought there was more than just the accident on Maura's mind. Mm -hmm. Billy was an Army lieutenant who was stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Just a few weeks earlier, Moore had arranged for a summer job at a hospital in Oklahoma to be closer to Billy. Okay. They would have ended up married, said Fred. Later, Billy would tell a local newspaper that he and Moore were engaged to be engaged. <laughs> the couple met while studying at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and began dating in the fall of 2001. After three semesters, Moore transferred to UMass to continue her studies. Military just wasn't for her, said Andrea Connolly, a high school friend who ran on the track team with Moore. Billy and Moore remained close after her transfer, traveling between their schools to spend time together. After a few calls on Sunday morning, February 8th, it appeared Fred's insurance would cover the accident and it was time to move on. She didn't say anything about taking time off. Fred had a work obligation in Bridgeport, Connecticut, so he rented a car and dropped Maura off at her UMass dorm. That evening at 11.30 p.m., Fred talked to Maura on the phone and reminded her to pick up accident forms from the Registry of Motor Vehicles. Maura agreed to call her dad on the phone the next night, Monday, at 8 to go over the forms and fill out the insurance information. Later that night, shortly after midnight, Maura scanned the internet for information on the Berkshires and found directions to Burlington and Stowe, Vermont on MapQuest.com remember that yeah. <laughs> according to a police search that was later done on her computer and dorm room the next day monday february 9th Moore made a number of phone calls just before 1 p.m she called dominic and linda salamone a couple who owned a rental condominium at the seasons at Hattash resort in bartlett new hampshire okay a little aside could a hit and run accident be connected to Moore's disappearance like I said, this article is in depth. While Moore was crying in her workplace in Melville Dormitory, another puzzling event was taking place elsewhere at UMass. Around 12.20 a.m., a UMass junior, Patrick Bassey of Dorchester, was found unconscious in the road at the intersection of Triangle and Mattoon Streets in Amherst, about a mile and a half away from where Moore was working. Vassy, an economics major, was presumed to be the victim of a hit-and-run, but details remain murky. Interviewed several months later, Vassy said he had been drinking and could not be certain if he had been struck by a car or fallen out of a car. <laughs> I can I can barely remember anything about that night, he told the Daily Collegian, the UMass College newspaper. Vassy did say that based on the location of his injuries, he believed he had been hit by another vehicle. Campus police said they had no information on how the incident occurred and no witnesses. Vassy was hospitalized for over a month and did not return to campus until the following semester. While speculation has focused on a possible link between the accident and Mora's demeanor and later departure, such a scenario is unlikely. To have been present at the scene of the accident, Mora would have had to leave her work, walk to her car, drive downtown, and return without her supervisor noticing. As for her teary outburst, there is no evidence that Mora knew who Bassey was, according to Helena Murray, a member of Mora's extended family. Although, if we remember, she did go to a party at the house where Bassey lived remember the party house yeah. that was that's owned also owned by the same guy that owns the uh the auto repair shop yeah okay potentially the yeah and potentially everything with nearly twenty thousand undergraduate students the odds 
are long that more I enrolled in their Chechen. What was, what? He was an Albanian, Albanian and the others Albanian. were Iranian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the owners yeah, were Iranian. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Could have known a student from a different undergraduate school. Nonetheless, it is possible that Maury might have heard about the accident that night since she was working for campus security. Okay, anyway, so just before 1 p.m., she called Dominic and Linda Salamone, a couple who own a rental condominium at the Seasons at Adatash Resort in Bartlett, New Hampshire. Maura's family, which frequented the Bartlett area, had stayed at the Seasons, although never at this condominium. The Salamones don't remember the conversation with Maura, but they are certain they did not book their condominium. To do so on such short notice would have been impossible, explained Linda Salamone. We don't operate like a hotel. Rental must, must be booked far in advance in order for the Salamones to drop a key in the mail. The call to the Salamones lasted about three minutes, records show. Linda Salamone speculates she might have offered more recommendations on other places to stay, though her memory was foggy by the time police finally interviewed her nearly a year after Maura went missing. Maura called a fellow nursing student at 1.13 p.m., though the purpose of her call is not clear. According to John Healy in New Hampshire Private Eye, who is familiar with the case, Moore may have arranged to give her scrubs to a fellow nursing student. Oh, so she wasn't borrowing them. So she, if she did it. Her, she yeah. Was so that would indicate she didn't need them anymore and she was planning to leave, wouldn't it? Well, Unless that, that was set up and it wasn't really her. Yeah, jeez. Oh, well, well that because that's what I had thought, but we don't know because that student never saw her. Correct. So we don't mm, Family member Helena Murray maintains that Maura, always conscientious, was merely returning scrubs she borrowed. Hmm. At 2.05 p.m., Maura made a five-minute call to 1-800-GHOSTO where hotel bookings can be made. The GHOSTO system was actually out of order at this time, so Maura could not have made a reservation and could only listen to voice recordings. Also on Monday, Maura sent an email to her boyfriend, Billy Roush. Maura's email to Billy that day read, I love you more stud, I got your messages, but honestly I didn't feel like talking too much of anyone. I promised to call today though. The message was signed, love you Mora. At 2.18pm, Mora called Billy on his cell phone and left a brief voice message. She said something along the lines of, I love you, I miss you, I want to talk, according to Billy's mother, Sharon Roush. How would you know? She <laughs> The cell phone Maura used was a gift from Billy, but Sharon's name was on the account. Billy would later be shipped out to Iraq, where he remains. A police investigation later revealed that Maura also emailed te teachers at the UMass Nursing School and her boss at a local art gallery to let them know she would be out of town for several days due to a death in the family. Uh -huh. There was no death in the family, according to Maura's family. Uh -huh. Maura's friends don't know why she made up the death in the family story. There was something she wanted to get away and think about, said longtime friend Liz Druniak. Maybe she just wanted to get away. She was probably under a lot of pressure. There well, is... Uh, think about it. Think about it. If everything is true, then she pot she potentially hit somebody. She, you know, there, there's all kinds of... of man, that, that's... There is further evidence suggesting that Mora had intended to leave campus for at least a few days. Mora had fastidiously packed all her belongings into boxes before she left school, even removing the art from her dorm room walls. That's not coming back. The Boston... Well, how do you know it was ever up, though? Maybe she, when she moved into the dorm in, like, September, she never put it up. How do you know for sure? Because there's so little room in, in college dorms that there's no room. Well, maybe she didn't know her dorm would be small, so she put, she brought all that stuff and just didn't put it on the wall. Because usually, usually you don't bring a lot of stuff. Yeah. You usually bring a little bit, and then you acquire stuff, and then you have a lot to leave with. Yeah. <laughs> the Boston Globe reported citing UMass Police Lieutenant Robert Thrasher. 
It looked like she was planning to leave school, said Lieutenant John Scarinza of the New Hampshire State Police. Although police and some friends suggested her packing that Mora may have been intending to leave school permanently, there is reason to doubt such a conclusion. Mora had recently returned from winter break. The University of Massachusetts has an unusually long break running from before Christmas into late January. Mora returned home to Hanson during her break and logically would have packed her belongings for such an extended time away. The UMass calendar refers to a welcome back week occurring over the last week of January and into the first week of February. It is therefore plausible that Mora had been back on campus less than 10 days. Family members also point out that Mora was a neat freak by nature, so it wouldn't be unusual for the former West Point cadet to have her belongings carefully packed and arranged. Moreover, there is no indication that Mora was doing poorly in school. To the contrary, she had made the dean's list the prior semester and was known as a good student. Before leaving the UMass campus on Monday, Mora packed some clothing and toiletries, including a toothbrush and floss. Mora was especially conscientious with her dental hygiene, according to her mother, Lori Murray. She would never go along without brushing and flossing. She also brought along her birth control, according to private detective John Smith. Mora must have packed her college textbooks as well, since they were later found in her car. Mora had been getting rides from friends at school due to her car problems, says Sharon Roush, so it is unlikely the textbook would have already been in the car. Mora also packed a cell phone charger and a Samsung travel adapter for her cell phone. Finally, Mora grabbed her favorite stuffed animal, a monkey her father had given her, and a diamond necklace from Billy. Sometime around 3.30 p.m. on Monday, February 9th, Mora left her dorm and got into her Saturn. At 3.40 p.m., she withdrew $280 from a nearby ATM, leaving her account almost empty. Mora was due to be paid soon from her two part-time jobs. Mora then stopped off at a local liquor store and brought about $40 worth of alcohol, Bailey's, Kahlua, vodka, and a box of wine, according oh to her God. sister Ka Kathleen. Police later found a liquor store receipt in Mora's car. A police review of surveillance footage showed Mora was alone at both the ATM and the liquor store. So they do have a video of the liquor store. Okay. They just haven't released it. At 4.37 p.m., Mora checked her voicemail for messages. This was the last recorded call on her cell phone. As she promised her father, Mora obtained accident forms before leaving town. The forms were later found in her vehicle. Mm -hmm. Mora may have stopped at the Registry of Motor Vehicles on Route 9 in neighboring Hadley, or she could have downloaded them from the registry website. Oh, interesting. Hmm. So she might not have gotten she, them on location. Yeah, yeah, and that might be why there's a legitimate discrepancy because they're yeah. like, oh, she has the forms, yeah. but we don't know which police station ah, she could have downloaded yes. them and yep. not gone to either. Correct. Okay. okay. And earlier, remember I said, what if she's trying to hide? If you're trying to hide, you wouldn't go to a police station. Yeah. So maybe she is trying okay. to hide and she didn't go to a police station. Okay. Uh oh. Uh -oh. Maura Murray then hit the road, heading north toward New Hampshire wilderness. She never returned. Oh, jeez. Nestled in the Connecticut River Valley, a stone's throw from the Vermont border, Woodsville is a rural village within the town of Haverhill, New Hampshire. Woodsville has, been a, has a year-round population of 1,080 and was best known as the home of America's oldest covered bridge until the night of Monday, February 9, 2004. <laughs> Sometime after 7 that evening, 21-year-old Maura Murray found herself in a snow 
snowbank off Wild Amanusak Road in Woodsville. How and why she arrived at that point and what happened next is a source of great mystery, conjecture, and heartache. Wild Amanusak Road, also known as Route 112, winds along the northern end of Woodsville near the town line with Bath, New Hampshire. The road is named for the nearby Wild Amanusak River, which starts in the White Mountains and snakes west for about 15 miles, eventually flowing into the Connecticut River. Little is known about Morris' trip north after she left the UMass campus in Amherst, Massachusetts around 4 p.m. Presumably, she drove Route 116 out of Amherst, picked up U.S. Route 91 north and south Deerfield, Massachusetts, and headed toward New Hampshire. Considering that Mora landed on Route 112 in Woodsville, she likely took Exit 17 off Route 91 to reach 302. Where was Mora headed? Mora was presumably headed to the town of Bartlett, a family favorite vacation spot and home of the Atatash Ski Resort in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Mora continued to visit the White Mountains with her father into her college years and even brought along her boyfriend Billy on a family trip several months before her fateful journey. One of Mora's last phone calls was to a condo resort in Bartlett, Route 112. The road where Mora's car was found is also a direct route to Bartlett from Route 91. In the icy winter months, however, motorists are advised to take the more traveled Route 302 to Bartlett instead of the scenic but dangerous Route 112. Why did Mora take the Route 112 exit? Was she having car trouble? Was she trying to take a shortcut? No one knows. In winter, local travelers know to take Route 302 if headed to Bartlett, New Hampshire, instead of the faster but snake-light Route 112, which later turns into the Kangamangas Highway. The entire journey from Amherst would have taken more two and a half to three hours. But there was snow on the ground, but it was a mild February evening in Woodsville. It had been quite cold earlier in the day, but by 2 p.m., a warming trend drove the temperatures above freezing, and they hovered around 33 degrees Fahrenheit for most of the night. Later reports would erroneously state the high temperature at 12 degrees. Yeah, it's messed up. Shortly after 7 p.m., Faith Westman heard a loud thump outside her white gambrel. You know something? At, at 12 degrees, if she was somewhat inebriated and running, I, I don't think she'd make it. For no. No. And, and the search would find her pretty quick. But at 33, a little better. Oh, at 33, yeah. yeah, yeah. Shortly after 7 p.m., Faith Westman heard a loud thump outside her white Gambrel-style home at 70 Wild Amanusak Road. Her house is located inside a sharp left-hand bend in the road. Westman lives there with her husband, Tim. She, the couple also owns the Weathered Barn, a well-known local landmark which is across the street at 69 Wild Amanusak Road. In this barn, Tim Westman, a renowned craftsman, restores antique musical instruments. Faith Westman peered out her window and saw Murray Murray's black Saturn lodge in a snowbank. Yeah, dark green. Yeah. Same black here. <laughs> huh. Looks black to me. Faith Westman peered out her window and saw Murray Murray's black Saturn lodge in a snowbank a short distance from her home. The car was facing west on the eastbound side of the road. From the look of things, it was clear there had been some kind of accident. At 7.27 p.m., Westman called the Grafton County Sheriff's Department to report the vehicle, which she described as being in a ditch. Westman told dispatcher Rhonda Marsha that she was not sure if there was any injuries. Notably, the log reports that Westman said she could see a man in the vehicle smoking a cigarette. Mora never smoked and was vehemently anti-smoking, according to her mother and father. In a later interview with Mora's father, Fred Murray, the Westmans could not agree on an exact description of the person in the Black Saturn. Faith Westman believed she had seen a man with a cigarette 
while Tim Westman believed it was a woman at the scene on her cell phone and that the red light from the phone looked like the tip of a cigarette. An investigator who later interviewed the Westmans confirmed that the couple did not fully agree on the description. When asked to clarify for this story, the Westmans declined to comment. We've been down that path too many times. It's worn thin, Tim Westman said. Meanwhile, across the street, neighbor Virginia Murat was standing in her kitchen with her husband, John, who was peeling an orange. From our kitchen window, we saw a car down the road with trouble lights flashing and someone walking around the car, Virginia Murat wrote in response to a set of questions sent in for this series. But the guy, the guy driving the school bus said that there were no lights on. Yeah. John Murat said the same story to private investigator John Healy after the incident and added that he believed he saw Mora's car back up parallel to the road indicated by the car's rear lights. While the Marats were watching from their kitchen window, they observed another neighbor arrive on the scene in the school bus. Arthur Butch Atwood. Okay, no, but wait. If they're saying that there's backup lights and there's flashing hazard lights, and he says there are no lights. Yeah, it's weird. Okay, just pointing that out. Well, they might have also noticed it all at different times. So yeah. That might have all been true. Our hazards usually stay on. You don't turn your hazards off. Arthur, Arthur yeah. Butch Atwood Arthur. is a former Taunton, Massachusetts resident who worked as a bu school bus driver for First Student Inc., the second largest school bus operator in the U.S., according to the company website. Atwood lived with his wife, Barbara, in a log cabin-style home 210 yards east of the Westmans at 4 Wild Emanusac Road. Atwood was on his way home after dropping off students following a ski field trip. His home is on the town line with neighboring Bath. Atwood stopped by the scene of the accident and saw a young woman alone in the car whom he later identified as Maura Murray. Her dark hair was hanging down, not dark in hair? its customary bun. Dark hair? Yeah, she has dark hair. Well, she, she looks like in all her photos she has lighter hair. Mm. Any anyway. brown, dark brown? Yeah, dark green, black car. It's all messed up. Uh, although Atwood said he could clearly see her face. She was shook up but not injured, he reported to police. I saw no blood. She was cold and she was shivering, Atwood told the Caledonian record. Mora struggled to get out of her Saturn because the car door was hitting against a snowbank, Atwood recalled when interviewed for this story from his new home in Florida. There was as much as two and a half feet of snow on the ground in the area. Atwood stepped out of his bus and asked Mora, if she wanted him to call the police. Mora told him not to bother, saying that she had already called AAA, Atwood said. Mm -hmm. A New Hampshire State Police synopsis released by Lieutenant John Scarinza four months later printed a different view of their encounter. When the passerby stated that he was going to call local law enforcement to come assist, Mora pleaded with him not to call police. Atwood said that Moore remained on the driver's side of her car about 15 to 20 feet away and stayed there during their entire conversation. A heavy-set man about 60 years old, Atwood may have cast an intimidating figure to Moore. I might be afraid if I saw Butch. He's 350 pounds and has this mustache. Barbara Atwood told the, the Patriot Ledger two weeks after the accident. Atwood offered to let Mora wait at his house until help arrived, but Mora wanted to wait with her car. He advised Mora to turn her car's lights on to avoid getting hit by vehicles coming around the bend. Atwood then left the scene and drove the 100 yards to his home. Wait, he advised her to turn the lights on? Yeah. So, earlier it said that her lights are on. <laughs> yeah, but at which point yeah. were people reporting? 
Atwood doubted that Mora could have reached AAA due to the sparse cell phone coverage in the area. I knew better, he said later. Family friend Sharon Roush also confirmed that AAA did not receive a call from Mora that night. Based on his recollection and the Times reported in police dispatch logs, Atwood's conversation with Mora could have lasted only a few minutes. After Atwood drove away, Faith Westman noticed the Saturn's interior lights switch on and off and witnessed a flurry of activity at the rear of the car, including a person standing at the trunk, according to private investigator John Smith, who spoke with the Westmans after the accident. Smith is one of the several retired police officers who have been working on a volunteer basis with the New Hampshire League of Investigators. Meanwhile, Butch Atwood backed his school bus into his driveway and went inside to call police. He had difficulty reaching the 911 operator due to busy phone circuits. Atwood eventually got through to the Hanover Regional Dispatch Center, which in turn alerted the Grafton County Sheriff's Department at 7.43 p.m., 16 minutes after Faith Westman's original call. Atwood spoke to the 911 operator from the front porch of his house. He could see the road, but Morris' car was not in his line of sight. As he spoke, a few cars passed by, but Atwood was not able to identify any of them. I did not hear or see anything strange happen, Atwood said. Three minutes later at 7.46 p.m., Haverhill Police Sergeant Cecil Smith arrived on the scene. He had been dispatched at 7.29 p.m. following the call from Faith Westman. Atwood saw that a police vehicle had arrived, so he went to his school bus to finish up some paperwork, he said during an interview. Atwood later estimated that seven to nine minutes had elapsed from the time he'd left Mora to the arrival of the police cruiser, the Caledonian record reported. Sergeant Smith approached Mora's car and discovered that it was locked. There was no sign of Mora. The driver's side windshield was cracked and both front airbags had been deployed. In a window of just minutes, Moore Murray had vanished. Evidence at the scene indicated the vehicle had been eastbound and had gone off the roadway, struck some trees, spun around, and come to rest facing the wrong way in the eastbound lane, according to the accident report filed by Sergeant Smith on February 15th, six days after the accident. Tire impressions were found in the snow, though none were reported on the road. Sergeant Smith found a box of Franzio wine behind the driver's seat of the vehicle and a red liquid on the driver's side door and ceiling of the car. Mora's high school friend Liz Druniak recalls that Mora was not a heavy drinker but often liked to buy wine by the box. The box was damaged, <laughs> oh my God. perhaps in the accident, and the reddish spots resembling wine were also found on the road, according to investigator John Healy. Sergeant Smith later recovered a Coke bottle that contained a red liquid with a strong alcoholic odor. None of the other bottles of alcohol that Mora had bought in Amherst were found in the car. So she took them with her. Or someone else did. Mm. The red truck. Or the cops wanted some extra drinks. Oh, jeez. While later reports would suggest that a witness observed Moore intoxicated at the time of the accident, the source of that information is unclear. Circumstantial evidence suggests Moore may have been drinking wine prior to the crash, but Butch Atwood confirmed to a reporter for the story that Moore did not appear intoxicated when he spoke with her. Was there a second accident that night? Local Woodsville residents have come forward claiming to have heard about another accident on a police scanner the same evening that Moore's accident was reported. The woman, who goes by the first name Ann, was first recounted the incident on a posting to the Moore Murray website. She spoke to a reporter for the story but did not want her name used. Around 7 that evening, Ann, Ann recalled that she heard reports on the police scanner in her home that a young female driver was off the road and emergency vehicles were to respond. Ann said she heard a second call come in telling the emergency vehicles to turn back because there was no need for their service. The young female driver was said to have left the area of Swiftwater Road in a private vehicle. Swiftwater Road is about two miles from Moore's accident scene. There is also Swiftwater Circle, a half mile from the accident scene. To further confuse the matter, there is a small area near Woodsville that 
locals often call Swiftwater. <laughs> the only reason we paid attention to the call was that we had a friend who was from Florida and was spending her first winter up here and living alone, and that was the route she drove home on, Anne explained. There was no mention of a second accident in the Grafton County Sheriff's Log that day. In fact, no activity was reported between 6.08 p.m. and 7.27 p.m. Speculation has focused on a possible link between the two accidents, although there is no other evidence available to prove that a second accident occurred or that Mora was in any way involved. Okay. Okay. Other items found in Mora's car were a AAA card, insurance forms, gloves, compact discs, makeup, computer-generated directions for Burlington and Stowe, Vermont, and a book Mora had been reading by Nicholas Howe, Not Without Peril. Sergeant Smith also found a rag stuffed into the exterior tailpipe of Morris Saturn. That's when the, the frantic uh, action at the back of the car yeah. and the trunk open. I bet you that's when they were doing it. The uh, rag? I don't know. I'm just saying. The rag came from the trunk of Morris' car, See? according to Fred Murray, who had said he stored the rag along with an emergency roadside kit in the Saturn. Whether Morris stuffed the rag in the tailpipe herself and what her motivation could have been remains unclear. Stuffing a rag into a tailpipe would stall the vehicle and it would eventually kill the engine, according to Ferries Automotive and Hansen. Plugging the tailpipe can also be a way to check for leaks in a vehicle's exhaust system. While carbon monoxide poisoning is a common method of attempting suicide, it would normally require a means of feeding the deadly gas back into the vehicle, such as a hose or in a confined space. When asked if Mora could have put the rag in the tailpipe, her father said that it was possible. If smoke was trailing out of the tailpipe, Mora may have wanted to plug the pipe to avoid attracting attention from police. After checking the area around the Saturn, Sergeant Smith knocked on the Westman's door and asked the couple what they had seen. Sergeant Smith then drove the 200 yards east to Butch Atwood's home and found Atwood sitting in his bus. Sergeant Smith knocked on the bus window. He asked where the girl was. Atwood recalled and told the officer he hadn't seen anyone since leaving Mora's vehicle. At 7.56 p.m., 10 minutes after Sergeant Smith arrived, EMS arrived on the scene, followed by a fire truck one minute later. New Hampshire State Trooper John Monahan also stopped by the scene of the accident. It is not clear what time he arrived, if he was dispatched to the accident, or if he stopped on his own accord. Monahan, who is now assigned to the Registry of Motor Vehicles, did not respond to several requests for clarification. But we saw his interview. Yeah. After the fact. Well, at the time of this uh, writing, and the other one, Monahan was like top of the list on everybody's yeah, want to yeah. know list, because yep. it was so mysterious. Yep, and then we saw him after the fact, and he didn't yeah. seem quite so honest. <laughs> <laughs> Mona, Monahan, who is now assigned to the Registry of Motor Vehicles, did not respond to several requests for clarification. Assistant Attorney General Jeff Stresland, who is now handling documents for the case, said he was not sure he could provide specifics but would look into the matter. No further information was available at press time. Sergeant Smith and Atwood both drove to the area searching for more. Atwood drove in the loop for Mountain Lakes, a nearby recreational and residential area, to the Swiftwater Stage Shop General Store. I took a ride around the back roads. I was gone about 15 minutes. Then I took a ride to French Pond, Atwood told the Caledonian Record. Sergeant Smith was believed to have driven westbound on Route 112, according to Fred Murray, who has said that no search was done eastbound on Route 112. Sergeant Smith was believed to have driven westbound on Route 112, according to Fred Murray, who said that no search was done eastbound on Route 112. At 8.02 p.m., EMS had cleared the scene, and at 8.49 p.m., the fire crew had also left. Moore's car was towed 10 miles to Lavoie's Auto Care Center on Route 12 in Haverhill. No, it wasn't. It was Cody's <laughs> private garage. At 9.27 p.m., Sergeant Smith was dispatched to another call on Lime Kill Road in North Haverhill, a suicidal teenager in danger of electrocuting himself. All right. Who was driving the red truck? 
This Swiftwater General store is about one mile from the scene of Moore's accident. Moore would have driven past the store while on Route 112. A witness saw what she called a suspicious red truck with Massachusetts yeah, that's plates. What I was at the store. Pl idle in front of the store shortly after 7 p.m. Yeah, that's what I was. Sometime that evening, a state trooper, reportedly Trooper John Monahan, spoke with a woman who was walking along Route 112 by Bunga Road a little over a mile from the accident. The woman had not seen more, but did report a suspicious red truck sometime around 7 p.m. to 7.15 p.m. The witness later recounted her story on a Maura Murray website under the screen name Robinson Nordway. The substance of her story has been confirmed by family members and others close to the investigation. I was walking that night about 7 p.m. to the local store. As I was walking up the hill, a truck passed me and slowed down. When it got to the middle of the hill, it stopped in the road. I immediately looked at the plate and noticed it was from Massachusetts. There is only one street light there, and I could not tell how many people were in the vehicle. As I got closer to the truck, it took off up the hill. When I rounded the corner to the store, I could see the truck in the driveway of the store. As I walked into the parking lot, which is well lit, the truck took off toward the crash site. When I entered the store, I asked if the store owner saw the people in the truck, and she said no, no one had come in. I told her about them stopping on the hill, then we just forgot about it. I stood in the store a while and was there when the police and ambulance went by. I never saw that truck again. The only way I can describe it is that it looked like someone who delivered wood. Because it has like paneling or whatever. Yeah. The night wore on, but temperatures did not dip below 25 degrees. At okay. noon the next day, Tuesday, February 10th, police issued a be on the lookout for Maura Murray. She was described as wearing a dark coat with black hair hanging past her shoulders, standing 5 feet 3 inches tall. Three. Her real height is 5'7", so yeah, the original she, yeah. bolo That's was correct. Four yeah. inches short. And weighing 120 pounds. A subsequent report from Haverhill Police stated that Maura was last seen wearing jeans and corrected her height to be about 5 foot 7 inches tall with brown shoulder length hair and blue eyes. Maura's cell phone was also missing from the scene and police reported she left with a black backpack. At 3.20 p.m. on Tuesday, Fred Murray got a voicemail on his home phone telling him his car had been abandoned in Woodsville, New Hampshire. Fred was at a contract job in another state and did not receive that message until much later. At 5 p.m., Fred received a cell phone call from his daughter, Kathleen. Moore's car had been abandoned and she was missing, Kathleen told her father. Shortly after talking to Kathleen, Fred Murray called the Haverhill police and insisted they immediately start searching for his daughter. Police told Fred that the New Hampshire Fish and Game Service would start a search Wednesday if Moore was not yet found. On Tuesday, February 10th, at 5.17 p.m., Moore was first referred to as missing by the Haverhill Police. Twelve hours later, the formal search for Moore Murray began. Yeah, it's rough, because if, if they're not searching within the first 48 yeah, hours, yeah, it's, it's, rough. it's rough. The Wells River Motel is a modest, cozy refuge that sits on the Vermont side of the Connecticut River just across from New Hampshire. The motel offers 11 rooms, each with its own theme, including a teddy bear room outfitted with teddy bears on the beds. As of Wednesday, February 11, 2004, the Wells River Motel became the unofficial headquarters in the search for Maura Murray. Just 36 hours earlier, Moore's car had been found abandoned along Route 112, eight miles away in neighboring Woodsville, New Hampshire. Moore's father, Fred Murray, was the first to arrive. Fred is an intense, energetic man in his 60s with a wiry frame, graying hair, and a passion for the outdoors. He knows the White Mountains intimately and often hiked and camped the area with Maura, the youngest of his three daughters. Fred had visited Maura the prior weekend at school in Amherst, Massachusetts. Following a two-day visit and some car shopping with Maura, Fred departed on Sunday to Bridgeport, Connecticut for a contract job at a local hospital where he worked as a medical technician. This was the last time Fred ever saw his daughter. 
It was around 5 p.m. on Tuesday that Fred first heard of Maura's disappearance. After several frantic phone calls to Haverhill Police, he hit the road in the wee hours of Wednesday morning and arrived at the Haverhill, New Hampshire Police Station just before dawn. As police arranged a formal search party, Fred headed to Wild Emanusac Road, Route 112, a rural twisting route that hugs the Wild Emanusac River and later turns into Kangamangas Highway. Maura's Saturn had j been found just past a sharp elbow in a heavily wooded section of the road. Fred combed the snow-covered area lining the street. No snow had fallen since Maura disappeared, and that made the search for footprints less difficult. Her car had already been towed away, but Fred scoured the scene looking for any clues his daughter may have left behind. There was no sign of Maura. You find footsteps, you're following them, but you're afraid to look down because it might be your daughter, Fred later recalled. The same Wednesday morning, 1,800 miles away, Maura's boyfriend, Army 2nd Lieutenant Billy Roush, headed to the Dallas-Fort Worth airport to catch a flight north. Once he heard that Maura was missing, Billy requested a leave of absence from his unit at Fort Sill in Lawton, Oklahoma, to join the search in New Hampshire. Before walking through airport security, Billy shut off his cell phone. Shortly after, a mysterious call came in that would later be a source of dispute. Family members began to arrive in Woodsville, including Maura's sister Kathleen and her brothers Freddie and Curtis. Maura's sister Julie was stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and flew up a few days later. The group had few clues to go on. Maura's siblings drove eastbound on Route 112 to North Woodstock and Lincoln, then across the Kangamangas Highway to Bartlett and Conway, tourist towns the family knew well from years of summer vacations. They checked motels and asked if anyone had seen Maura. No one had. They handed out flyers and posted them at bus stops, gas stations, and police stations. Meanwhile, on Wild Emanusac Road, members of New Hampshire Fish and Game arrived on the scene in a helicopter while Haverhill Police, New Hampshire State Police and a canine team gathered on the ground. This was the first time the area had been searched since Monday evening. A search dog sniffed the area trying to track Morris scent while a fish and game pilot flew just above the treetops scanning the forest for footprints. Snow had accumulated to about two and a half feet in depth by the first week in February. No exact times were reported, though the search must have occurred before the sunset at 5.12 p.m. that day. Back in Hanson, Massachusetts, the family's white split-level home, Lori Murray, was living a mother's worst nightmare. She had first learned of Maura's disappearance Tuesday afternoon when Haverhill, New Hampshire police called the house looking for the owner of an abandoned Saturn. A fractured ankle had kept Lori from joining her family in New Hampshire. Instead, she remained at home where she raised Maura and her four siblings, sat by the phone, and waited helplessly for any news of her daughter. There was little good news to report that day. Fred Murray and the rest of the family came up empty in their search along the Kangamangas Highway. The New Hampshire Fish and Games helicopter search turned up only deer and moose tracks. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack, said Kathleen. Wednesday's efforts did produce one significant lead. The lone search dog on the scene was given a black leather glove from Morris' car to sniff. Though the dog did not get any hits in the adjacent wooden area or from nearby homes, the dog did track Morris' scent near the intersection. Bradley hit road 100 yards eastbound from where her car was found. There are several homes in that area of the road, which is just yards from the Bathtown line. On the even side of Wild Emanusac Road is the home of Arthur Butch Atwood, the bus driver who said he stopped and offered more help that Monday evening. Across the street at one Wild Emanusac Road is the home of Rick Forcier, a 45-year-old local contractor who was living in a trailer on his property while his home was being built. Also within view is the property of Virginia and John Marat, who live adjacent to Rick Forcier. The abrupt loss of Maura's scent in the middle of the road prompted officials to speculate that Maura got into a passing vehicle. Whether she did go voluntarily or was forced remains open to question. As the day's search drew to a close, police spoke with Murray and the Roush families. Billy Roush had arrived in Woodsville earlier Wednesday and met up with his parents, Bill and Sharon, who traveled from their home in Marengo, Ohio.
Around 5 p.m. Wednesday, the Roush family arrived at the Haverhill Police Department located on Route 10, about nine miles from the scene of Mora's accident. Billy was extensively interrogated in private, and then Bill and I were questioned in the room with Billy, Sharon Roush later recounted. Fred Murray was asked if his daughter had recently experienced any traumatic events. He could only think back to Amherst when Mora banged up his new car. But in Fred's words, it wasn't a big deal. Mm-mm. At a meeting that night, Haverhill police speculated that Mora was suicidal or had planned to run away. There was no evidence of foul play or that Mora had wandered into the woods. Haverhill police chief Jeff Williams said he also explained that Mora, at the age of 21, was within her legal rights not to be found. Sharon Roush did not share that opinion. I cannot believe she said that there would be any problem in her life that would cause her to run away from three close groups of people in her life. Her family, Billy and his family, and the very close-knit group of Hanson High School girlfriends. Did Mora make the mysterious phone call? While a search was beginning in Woodsville, New Hampshire, Billy Roush was walking through security in a Dallas airport. He had just shut off his phone when he received a voicemail. Sharon Roush, Billy's mother, described the message. It was very short, consisted of a shivering, soft, whimpering sound with labored breathing as if someone was very cold. The number traced back to an AT&T calling card. Coincidentally, Sharon said she had bought two AT&T calling cards for more of the previous Thanksgiving holiday. After an investigation, New Hampshire State Police traced the calling card to the American Red Cross. Do they, even, okay. they don't use calling cards. Uh, well. Sharon had called the Red Cross sometime between Tuesday night and early Wednesday morning to request the emergency leave for Billy, but the but she doubts the mysterious call could have come from the Red Cross. I will say with a cer- with a certainty that contrary to New Hampshire State Police info, the call could not be traced, Sharon later told the reporter for this series. Private investigators and local law enforcement in Ohio later tried to track the call, but without the card number and PIN, it was not traceable, Sharon said. It just doesn't make any sense that the call was from the Red Cross because if they have been trying to call Billy, they never called back. The soft crying, sniffing, and muffled sobs didn't seem to make sense coming from the Red Cross, she said. Billy had been having problems with his phone where callers were sometimes sent to voicemail without realizing it, which could explain why a message was left and no one spoke, Sharon said. That doesn't work like that. If it just goes straight to voicemail? No, 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 uh... Yeah, but isn't she using that as an excuse why no one's speaking? Maybe. After police determine oh, the call... she doesn't want to leave a message, she's on voicemail. She yeah, but she doesn't know it's voicemail. If she thinks someone picked up... When it's oh, actually oh, oh, That's what Sharon's oh, saying. Oh, all right. I got you. Understood. After police determined the call was from Red Cross officials, they considered the case closed on the phone call. Red Cross officials? So, where's the closest Red Cross? Could she have gotten there? Could they, know. like, ran away and hide <coughs> out there? I don't know. Where was Moore going? During the search on Wednesday, a canine unit trailed Morris sent 100 yards eastbound from where her car was found. There are several plausible reasons why Mora would have been headed in this direction. She may have been trying to get cell reception. She may have changed her mind and wanted to take Arthur Butch Atwood up on his offer to call for help. Or Mora may have felt comfortable going to a home where children lived. Across the street from Atwood at Wild Amanusak is another home which nearly always has toys in the front yard. Mora may also have tried walking to the next town eastbound on Route 112, or perhaps she wanted to get a sense of how close the next town was. A large green highway sign stands directly next to Atwood's home and gives the mileage for Swiftwater, Woodsville, and Northern Woodstock. Exhausted and defeated, the search party returned to the Wells River Motel for the night. By the next day, Thursday, February 12th, police had issued a press release stating Mora may be en route to the Kangamangas Highway area and was listed as endangered and possibly suicidal.
The press release also stated that witnesses at the scene reported seeing a lone female with no apparent injuries who appeared impaired due to alcoholic consumption. It still remains unclear who the witnesses were that said Moore appeared to be intoxicated. The release was not dated, but a timestamp shows it was faxed to the Hanson, Massachusetts Police Department at 3.05 p.m. Thursday. On the UMass Amherst campus, another search was underway at Moore's dorm room. Investigators found her belongings packed in boxes, and a search of her computer showed she had downloaded directions to Burlington. In Vermont. UMass police and college counselors met later that week with students from Moore's nursing class. The dean of the nursing school, Eileen Breslin, sent out an email to the entire nursing college alerting them of Moore's disappearance. Details about Moore's last few days on campus were starting to emerge, including the fact that Moore had reported a death in the family when there was no death. It was later reported that Moore's credit cards, ATM card, and cell phone had not been used since Monday. The location of Moore's cell phone could not be traced using GPS technology, possibly due to poor cell phone coverage or a dead battery. In New Hampshire, the search efforts continued on Thursday. Fred and other family members posted flyers and canvassed the area. We went to every spot we thought she might go to, hotels and motels, and put up flyers, Billy Roush said later. Anything that looked suspicious would try to check it out, said Kathleen. The first newspaper report about Moore's disappearance hit the stands that day, a 200-word news brief from the Manchester Union leader. Moore was described as possibly suicidal by Chief Williams. Hmm. He trying to push an agenda or something? Sounds like it. Yeah. Other news outlets quickly latched onto the story, including New Hampshire and Boston television stations, which dispatched reporters to Woodsville. Police informed the media that no new leads had surfaced. We did an intense search of the crash scene area for evidence that she may have walked into the woods, but nothing like that was uncovered, Chief Williams told a New Hampshire TV station. After wrapping up their own search that day, Fred and Billy met with reporters in an outdoor press conference in Bethlehem, New Hampshire on Thursday night. This is very unusual, Fred explained to reporters. It's not like her to just take off. Fred pleaded for Maura to come home. I don't know what the matter is or the trouble you think you might be in, but it isn't anything we can't solve, he said through the media. It's me. You can tell me. We'll work it out until we saw it and, and, and again i'm just going to point out when they interviewed him he said oh yeah she wrecked my car but that's no big deal and here he's like if there was something we'll figure it out yeah he, he would just say you wrecked my car it's no big deal yeah. come home yeah Haverhill police were suspending their search efforts until new leads developed. Billy Roush told reporters that evening, family members planned to continue their search into Vermont on Friday, reasoning that Moore could have been headed to Burlington or Stowe. But when Fred walked into Vermont police stations on Friday, he was dismayed to learn that local law enforcement officers knew nothing about Moore's disappearance. I could hit a three iron over the river into Vermont. There was no investigation. He said, the frustration level was growing for family members. Fred was already distraught, having learned that on Monday night when Mora's car was found, the Haverhill police had not called ahead to alert other police stations along Route mm -hmm. 112. They could have put money and manpower where it counted. February 9th and 10th, Fred said in a later interview. New Hampshire State Police and Haverhill Police officials no longer comment on Mora's case, referring all inquiries to the Attorney General's office. In earlier reports, they defended their actions on the ground that there was no evidence of foul play. Lieutenant John Scarinzo, who is commander of State Police Troop F, which covers Grafton and Coos County, said at the time that he appreciated the family's frustration in not knowing what happened. But it is also true that she was apparently leaving Massachusetts without telling her family or friends or her boyfriend, he told the Associated Press. He also speculated with reporters that Mora may have fled the scene to avoid arrest because she was intoxicated. A manpower shortage could have hindered the ability 
capabilities of the Haverhill Police. Due to sick time training and vacancies, the seven-man department was down to as few as three full-time officers and a chief at the time of Moore's accident, town records show. Short of any new leads, official search efforts were curtailed as the days wore on. Even so, more family and friends headed north to conduct their own investigations. Strangers who didn't know Mora also offered to help. They knocked on doors, made phone calls, and spoke with the rev- residents, including those who had called 911. When Julie Murray finally got her leave from the U.S. Army and arrived in Woodsville, the first thing she did was head to the accident scene. I wanted to see it as Mora had seen it, after dark. I got out of the truck and walked up and down the road, looking at different angles and perspectives. There was a constant thought in my mind as I did this. If I were Mora, what would I have been thinking? Julie said in a recent email. It was very cold, dark, and quiet. I felt stunned. I will never forget that eerie feeling, she wrote. Fred was unrelenting in his pursuit. He chased down every new rumor, turned over debris, looked through rivers, and scoured every remote trail for any sign of Mora. After spending hours searching in the woods down long dirt roads where you wouldn't hear a thing, Fred would emerge, as he said, muddy, gooey, and covered in 200 ticks, mosquitoes, and black flies. It was 10 days after Mora went missing when Fred realized that some residents living within eyeshot of the accident scene had not yet been interviewed. He voiced his displeasure with the police. Authorities then launched a second search on Thursday, February February 19th. State police, members of New Hampshire's Fish and Game Conservation Team, three search dogs and a helicopter crew searched a two-mile radius in Woodsville area around Route 112. We wanted to make sure we had done everything twice, Lieutenant Scarina told the Caledonian Record. At a press conference held at the end of the day, Lieutenant Dodd Bogardus of Fish and Game said that the search came up empty. Ground crews checked trails and roadways. There are no conclusive clues to continue. Bogardus told the union leader. Lieutenant Scarinza concurred, we have a very good feeling we have done everything we can do at the crash site. In a phone interview following the second search, State Police Sergeant Tom York, now retired, said that while there was no longer an active ground search underway, investigators were still charging forward, looking into background information and other leads. We're concerned about where she is. Sergeant York said that while police found no evidence of foul play to suggest a criminal investigation, he stretched that the term was just a label, that the police would be treating the case much as they would a criminal investigation. The second search has done little to assuage Fred's frustration. He feared the status of missing person would be a roadblock in pursuing an investigation and we told the media we should think of it in terms of a criminal investigation. Let's grab the bull by the horns and call it foul play. As the second search came to a fruitless end, friends and family members began to return to their lives. Billy had to get back to Fort Sill in Oklahoma and about two weeks later on March 2nd, Morris siblings checked out of the Wells River Motel, fighting utter exhaustion and desperation, a friend recalled. Morris' belongings were returned to the family. Kathleen brought them to her house in Hanover. The car itself was released from police custody but remained at Lavoie's garage in North Haverhill. Bleary-eyed but resolute, Fred also checked out of the Wells River Motel after three solid weeks searching for Mora. He was not giving up, though. Fred would become a regular at the motel, returning nearly every weekend over the course of the next year. Fred Murray was as determined as a man could be. The immediate search for Mora was over. His battle to find his daughter was just beginning. Oh, my God. Was there really a letter? In 
In a state police press release in June of 2004, Lieutenant John Scarinza said a letter was found during a search of Moore's dorm room. Moore had packed all her belongings in her dorm room at UMass, putting everything neatly in boxes and putting all the boxes on her bed, along with a personal note she had received from her boyfriend. In an earlier TV newscast, Lieutenant Scarinza relayed a slightly different story, saying a note to Moore's boyfriend was found in a prominent place in Moore's dorm, according to family members and a report in the UMass newspaper. Moore's boyfriend, Billy Roush, who had visited Moore's dorm room with campus police within days of Moore's disappearance disputed that such a letter even existed. The possible existence of such a note also rankled Fred Murray. This clearly suggests the traditional suicide letter, but the deception is that she never wrote or left such a letter at all, and the police were fully cognizant of this fact at the time. Fred wrote a year after Moore's disappearance in a letter of appeal to the New Hampshire governor. In this same press release, New Hampshire State Police also described the relationship between Billy and Moore as a difficult long-distance relationship. The couple's relationship has caused a bit of speculation. In an interview at Lori Murray's home in Hanson, Moore's sister Kathleen said she had consoled Maura through several difficult bouts with Billy, usually in late-night phone calls. Kathleen said she was not convinced Maura was happy in the relationship. Maura's good friend Liz Druniak said the couple had problems, but not unlike any other relationship. Supposedly the letter was an email from Billy admitting he had cheated on her or something. That was the rumor. Part 4 of the Aftermath. A song of gentle vocals played in the background as Fred Murray pulled down a faded blue bow from a tree on Wild Emanusac Road in Woodsville, New Hampshire. It was February 9, 2005, just a few feet from where Moore's black Saturn was found pressed against a snowbank one year before. Joining him were family, friends, a local minister, and a herd of media. He stapled a bright bow and a fresh picture of Moore onto the tree. I hope this is the last time I have to do this, Fred told reporters. By now, Fred Murray knew the area intimately. Ever since his daughter went missing, he had spent almost every weekend in the White Mountains driving up from Bridgeport, Connecticut to search for any clue to Moore's disappearance. Earlier that same Wednesday morning, Fred tipped off the media that he was headed to the New Hampshire State House in Concord in hopes of meeting newly elected Governor John Lynch. With media at his heels... Fred did meet with Lynch for about 10 minutes. This was his latest plea for FBI help in the case. Since Moore was still considered a missing person, the FBI could only join the investigation if invited by New Hampshire State Police. Fred also asked for the governor's help in releasing police records pertaining to the investigation. He had requested documents from police such as phone logs and accident reports. The governor assured Fred he would look into the situation. After the meeting, Fred told reporters he hoped Governor Lynch would intervene on his behalf, but in the interview two years later, he described the meeting as no more than window dressing, an effort to show the public that the governor was a good guy. This was Fred's second appeal to a New Hampshire governor. In May of 2004, three months after Moore disappeared, Fred had petitioned then-Governor Craig Benson for help, based in part on a new lead that developed. A local contractor named Rick Forcier had reported seeing Mora on the night of her accident around 8, about 4 to 5 miles from the scene of her abandoned car. Forcier lived on Wild Emanusac Road, about 100 yards from where Mora's car was found. Forcier was returning home from a contract job in Franconia, about 17 miles away, when he observed a young woman who fit Mora's description running eastbound on Route 112. When Forcier was first questioned by police, 10 days after Moore disappeared, he did not mention seeing the girl running because he was confused about the dates and mistakenly thought it had been two nights after Moore's accident. Nearly three months later, after hearing numerous reports about the search for Moore, Forcier checked his work records and realized it was the same night as Moore's disappearance. Forcier told his story to Fred Murray, who relayed the information to police. 
On April 29th, Forcier was interviewed by State Police Lieutenant John Scarinza, who checked out Forcier's time records at his job in Franconia and confirmed that his story was credible. As a result of this new information, a search was conducted on May 8th. Canine teams with six dogs and 15 fish and game officers searched the area where Forcier may have seen more running. No new leads were reported. That same day, Fred held a press conference at the Woodsville American Legion Hall with the parents of Brianna Maitland, a 17-year-old girl who was last seen leaving her waitress job in Montgomery, Vermont, about six weeks after Moore went missing. Montgomery is located about 90 miles north of Woodsville. Maitland's car was found abandoned about a mile from where she worked. At the same press conference were the parents of Amy Riley, who was last seen leaving a bar in Manchester, New Hampshire in August of 2003. Her body was found in April of 2004 in a pond in Manchester, New Hampshire, about 120 miles south of Woodsville. The press conference was another attempt by Fred to push for FBI help. He and other families believed the three cases could be connected, and since the Maitland and Murray cases crossed state lines, the FBI should be involved, they reasoned. Why wouldn't state police want the best help in the world? Fred asked in a later interview. The FBI had been involved on a limited basis shortly after Moore disappeared, but its role was restricted to interviewing Moore's family and friends in Massachusetts. The Bureau would later take a more aggressive role in the Maitland disappearance, but it has not been in publicly involved in Moore's case. Exactly one month later, on June 8, 2005, Vermont and New Hampshire State Police issued a joint press release stating that there was no connection between the Moore, Murray, and Brianna Maitland cases. Investigators believe Moore was headed for an unknown destination and may have accepted a ride in order to continue to that location, said Lieutenant Scurrenza in the release, adding that there were no signs of any struggle or any other evidence which would indicate that a crime had been committed. Two weeks later, a New Hampshire state police trooper turned up on the doorstep of Moore's sister Kathleen's home in Hanover, Massachusetts. The trooper requested that all items found in Moore's car be returned. Moore's belongings had been given to the Murray family within two weeks of the accident. Police also confiscated the hard drive of Moore's computer, which had been in her dorm room, and took custody of Moore's car, which had been sitting unlocked at a North Haver Hill, New Hampshire garage since the accident. Police explained that a major crimes unit of the state police was stepping into the case and wanted to conduct forensics tests of Moore's car and personal belongings. The fact that the major crimes unit was just now getting involved in the case rankled Fred Murray, who said he was repeatedly assured that Moore's disappearance was being handled in the same manner as a criminal case despite the missing person label. To this day, the, Moore, the Murray family is still in the dark as to why Murray, Moore's belongings were seized by police that day. Another ground search was initiated on July 13th. More than 100 searchers, including state police troopers and conservation officials, spread out across a one-mile radius of where Moore's car was found. No reason was given for why this search was conducted except to say police were looking for anything Moore may have left behind, such as the black backpack she believed to have been carrying when she left the scene. Meanwhile, Fred Murray was conducting his own search. Nearly every weekend, he drove to Woodsville to investigate any tip that came his way. Whether following up on supposed sightings of his daughter or checking out eccentric local characters, Fred was f always first on the scene. Any rumor will look at it, he said. There are plenty of good suspects. This is the worst place in the world to have an accident. <laughs> Fred was not the only one carefully watching the local crime scene for a possible link. Every time some strange crime happens here, people start saying, maybe it's related to the Maura Murray case, said Brian Flagg, a publisher and editor of the local newspaper North Country News. To this day, Fred traipses through remote paths of the New Hampshire forest peers into strangers' vehicles, rummages in dumpsters and basements, and even knocks on the doors of convicted felons. He is fearless in his search. Fred's persistence resulted in the 
formal letter of complaint from Haverhill, New Hampshire, Chief of Police Jeff Williams in April of 2004. Williams warned Fred that complaints of trespassing and parking on private property had been filed by area property owners and that repeat offenders would be arrested. Police would not say how many complaints were filed or by whom, though one resident and witness to the accident, Faith Westman, later admitted to submitting an official complaint. Many other Woodsville residents have said searches have not been a problem and were sympathetic to Fred's situation. Fred chased down rumor after rumor. Most led nowhere, but every now and then something turned up that merited further pursuit. In late 2004, a man came forward to Fred with a stained, rusty jackknife. The stains were a reddish-brown color, Fred said. The man told Fred he thought his brother may have been connected to Moore's disappearance. At the time of Moore's accident, the brother was living less than a mile way the man related. He described his brother as having a record of violence and said that his brother's live-in girlfriend began acting strange around the time of Moore's disappearance. Fred tried to turn the knife over to police but did not get beyond the plate glass window at state police headquarters. I have what could be evidence in a capital crime, he recalled saying to the dispatcher, but the dispatcher said no one was available at headquarters to accept such evidence. Fred was told to come back during regular work hours. Fred then mailed the knife to state police police along with all the information he received on the suspect. A few days later, Fred received a proof of receipt that his package had reached the police but was never contacted by police regarding the knife or the possible suspect. The man who came forward with the rusted jackknife died earlier this year. Supposedly. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's dead. Efforts. Really? Yeah, the they're talking about the Moulton oh, brothers. Oh, they didn't uh, name them. So right, that yeah, was yeah, supposedly yeah. the deathbed confession. Yeah, that was their story, but supposedly we, both brothers are still alive. We talked about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, we heard about that. Efforts to reach his brother once unsuccessful. The brother's identity and the identity of the man who approached Fred are not being disclosed because there is no evidence he's considered a suspect in Moore's disappearance. Police refused comment when asked about the knife. <laughs> in March of 2005, Fred, always relentless, made another push for FBI intervention and the release of police records on his daughter's investigation. He met with Attorney General Kelly Ayotte, senior assistant attorney general jeff streslin state police sergeant robert bruno who is now retired and state police lieutenant john scarinza in this meeting fred again passed along the information regarding the knife when fred still didn't hear back from police after that meeting he said i knew i was doomed Fred's frustration, coupled with failed attempts to access police records for the case, spurred him to file a lawsuit against various law enforcement agencies, including the state police in late 2005. Around the same time, about 10 retired police officers and detectives volunteered to give fresh eyes to Mora's case. This team, called the New Hampshire League of Investigators, was not privy to confidential police records, but analyzed the facts available to them, re-interviewed witnesses and family, and generally attempted to provide a support network for the family, which was growing angrier and less trusting of police. It is our job to be sort of a buffer between police and the family to help the family understand what the police are doing behind the scenes, explained John Healy, a former New Hampshire state police officer who was one of the team's leaders. Healy's team followed up with various other sources, and after a year of reviewing available materials, the volunteer investigators organized a two-day search in the last week of October in 2006. Canine teams were dispersed to six different publicly owned areas within five miles of where Morris' car was found. Healy would not provide specifics as to why certain areas were searched, explaining only that 95% of homicide victims are found within a five-mile radius of where they were last seen. It was the goal of investigators to thoroughly cover this area, he said. Gravel pits and sand pits were searched as these areas are ideal spots to dump a body. The area was French Pond 
The area around French Pond Road was also carefully examined because of its close proximity. French Pond Road was the route Butch Atwood had driven in his own search for Mora shortly after she disappeared from the scene. Fred was also present for the search and aggressively pushed investigators to search an A-frame house on Valley Road near the scene of the accident. He suspected it might be somehow connected. The property was on the real estate market, so Fred sought out real estate agent Stan Davis and asked permission to search the house. Davis confirmed that he gave Fred his consent and provided him with a key to the house. The fight for the house search was worth the effort. On the first day, a cadaver dog sniffed the house and had hits on the second level. The next day, four more cadaver dogs were put to work in the house and went bonkers, Fred said. The strongest hits by the dogs were in a downstairs closet. Cadaver dogs are skilled in sniffing for decomposing bodies but are not able to distinguish the identities of bodies. Though a dead body could have been stored in this closet, the dogs were not capable of identifying if the body was Mora. The investigators took a few trash bags filled with items from the house and a piece of carpet from the closet. According to Fred, the, the carpet was to be divided into two pieces. A portion of the carpet was to be given to state police, who were not present for the search, and the other portion was to be held by the group of volunteer investigators. A medical laboratory examination was to determine if stains on the carpet were blood and, if available, DNA matched Morris. Seven months later, laboratory tests results have not been made available from either group. There is confusion over who had custody of the carpet. Private investigator Healy was ill the weekend of the search, but said that the police were not at all interested in evidence and would not take the carpet into their possession. Healy said the carpet is now in the custody of an investigator who no longer has business relations with the group. I'm guessing that's John Smith. <laughs> Uh, an aside, a conspiracy theory was the accident staged. After analyzing photos of Mora's car and attempting to reconstruct the accident, volunteer investigators believe Mora's accident on Wild Emanusak may not have been her only accident that February evening. The damage to Mora's car does not match with the kind of damage typically caused by impact to a snow embankment or a tree, according to volunteer investigator John Healy. The hood of Mora's car was pushed in with a dent on the driver's side hood, but no significant damage was made to the car's driver's side headlight or front and bumper. If Mora had hit a tree, investigators believe there would have been significant front-end damage to her car, particularly the bumper. Investigators believe the damage found on Mora's car is more akin to hitting a guardrail or the back end of another vehicle. We are considering that Mora may have been involved in another accident prior to her car being found on Wild Emanusak, said Healy. We're not ruling out that the accident could have been staged. Investigator Frank Kelly concurs. I will state that her vehicle was not damaged at the site where it was located and towed from, he said. It is possible that Mora may have hit a deer or a moose that evening, but the damage appears more likely to have been caused by a truck or another vehicle that is higher off the ground than Mora's car, according to investigators. Private investigator Don Nason, who is the current president of the volunteer organization and was present at the search of the A-frame house, said all evidence was turned in to state police. We don't have the proper storage facility to hold evidence, he said. Nason assured everything possible was being done to obtain a successful outcome in Mora's case and was enthusiastic about police efforts. I have every faith in their work, he said. <laughs> Healy believes the Homicide Union has put more hours into Morris' case than any other in recent history. Jeff Streslin, chief of the Homicide Unit and senior assistant attorney general, confirmed that state police have put hundreds of hours into the investigation. Is that almost as much as we have now? <laughs> in a court hearing, Streslin argued that having records available to the public would hamper the prosecution if criminal charges were to be pressed in Mora's case. He predicted a 75% likelihood of prosecution. We do have information that we are pursuing that this may involve a crime, said Nancy Smith, senior assistant attorney general, while testifying in court. 
uh, just recording the 75% thing, some people theorize that he's talking about Bruce McKay. Okay. That rogue police officer, but then he was killed, and then nothing was ever brought back mm. to that. No, no, nobody ever answered for the seventy-five percent chance of conviction ever again. Yeah, and so, and and just to clear up for our listeners, that means there is no longer a seventy-five percent chance because the I one guess. that there would be a seventy-five percent chance is dead. If that's who they if were that's who they were talking yeah. about, which kind of makes it a moot point, and that yeah. would also be why we haven't heard any more about it. Yes, if that's what it is. We do have information that we are pursuing that this may involve a crime, said Nancy Smith, Senior Assistant Attorney General, while testifying in court. As an investigator, Nason is also sensitive to the police investigation for fear of compromising the case. Nason said most information volunteer investigators gather is only released to state police and the Attorney General's office. It doesn't even go to Fred. Fred has given up hope on the effectiveness of the police, <laughs> believing shoddy work is likely the reason they won't release records. They didn't do what they were supposed to do, and they've been covering up ever since. He is disillusioned with the League of Private Investigators. Fred continues his own search. Anything I want done, I do it myself, he said. It's now a warm weekend in June. Nearly three and a half years have gone by. Maura's story still has no ending. Fred Murray is back in New Hampshire. He's checked into the Wells River Motel, the same motel he stayed in the first day he looked for Maura. Fred sits in an easy chair in the corner of the modest room, leaning forward with his elbows on his knees, rubbing his hands together and mostly looking down as he recalls many months of court hearings, suspects, and searches. Suddenly, Fred jumps up. He stands squarely in the middle of the room with his hands on his hips. He talks about Maura. He remembers a hike they took not long before she went missing. These are some of his most cherished memories. Mora tailed him along the steep pitches of Bond Cliff, a three-peaked mountain trail in New Hampshire's White Mountains, Fred explains. The two climbed 23 strenuous miles of ascents and descents. When they finally reached the last peak, Mora pulled a long trail beer out of her backpack and handed it to her father. It was a celebration of their accomplishment together. Fred finishes his story and the motel room is silent. He walks to a window overlooking a parking lot, his hands still on his hips. The anguished father, who does not go more than minutes after waking each day before thinking about his missing daughter, stares out the window. Jesus, he sighs. Okay, so this is the epilogue, Mora is Missing. Here's What I Think by Marybeth Conway. Do a story about the disappearance of Maura Murray, my editor told me, and make it the most in-depth piece ever done on the case. <laughs> At first, a daunting task, but later a privilege. I poured over old news articles, checked websites, and jotted down questions. Then I called Fred Murray, Murray's father. My editor thought this would be a good start. He was wrong. Fred didn't return my call, or the next one, or the next one. Plan B was more effective. I got in touch with Helena Murray, a relative who keeps Mora's case alive through a website. She explained that media attention so close to home can be difficult for Fred. It means people will come up to him more frequently and want to talk about it on a day-to-day -day basis, she wrote in our first email correspondence. With my editor's nudging, I persisted. I reached out to anyone who would talk to me. Investigators working on the case answered my most basic questions. Residents living in the area gave me new insight. Reporters reflected on when they first covered the story, and Morris' friends gave me a sense of who the pretty brown-haired girl in the picture was. On three occasions, I visited the scene of the accident in Woodsville, New Hampshire. The last trip, when I re retraced Morris' drive, is still vivid in my mind. It was past dusk when I crossed over the New Hampshire border. The night was foggy, and I hugged the steering wheel tightly, trying to get a better view of the road in front of me. I thought back to that cold February night when Mora risked the chance of snow while driving her worn-out Saturn. At a snail's pace, I navigated onto the exit for Haverhill and wondered aloud, what were you thinking? I found the Woodsville locals to be especially friendly, but whenever the topic turned to Mora, people usually clammed right up. 
A few spoke quite freely, but only off the record. <laughs> After years of being hounded not only by media, but by investigators and families, some key witnesses such as Faith and Tim Westman, Rick Forcier, and Butch Atwood are reluctant to speak further about the case. Wait, let me, hold on, let me ask you a question, because I might have heard it wrong. The person, was it a Westman who uh, did trespassing against yes. the father? Yeah. It was them. Faith Westman. All right, all right, just making sure. <laughs> Cause, it, cause, cause, look, if you were intimate with this and you knew it was a girl missing, would you call the police and press trespassing against the father who's still looking for his daughter? Wouldn't you, like, if you had nothing to do or you didn't know, wouldn't you just sit back and and say he's aggrieved? I'll let him tramps around my my property. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't know if I'd have the heart, especially if I if I knew something. Well, the podcasters, Tim and Lance, they also mentioned in their last podcast that during, like, the vigil, mm -hmm. they blocked their parking, because they, they owned the Weathern Barn. Yeah. Barn. They blocked off the parking lot so no one could park there, so everybody had to park precariously yeah, on the side of the road where yeah. they could be hit, because they didn't want people parking on their property, even though she went missing right there. That's rough, man. That's rough. Yeah, it's kind of right. weird. Okay. I felt especially fortunate to score a conversation with Atwood, the bus driver who was the last known person to speak to Mara. Atwood moved to Florida not long after her accident and has avoided the media ever since. He even refused to talk with private investigator who traveled to Florida and showed up on his doorstep. Unfortunately, in a case with so little available information, it does not take much for some to cast a suspicious eye. Atwood's story and motives have been questioned in some online forums and clearly he has grown bitter from the entire ordeal. People think I had something to do with her disappearance, he said during our phone interview. I can hear it in your voice. You think I did it too. <laughs> Atwood explained that as a witness, the case had grown tiresome. You think you're doing a good thing for someone, but I've learned next time not to stop. I'm not stopping, <laughs> he said. Wow. Getting any information from police was even more difficult. I was continually referred to different departments of law enforcement for information requests, and ultimately the Attorney General's office stepped in to handle my questions. Unfortunately, the Attorney General's office was no better able to answer my questions. Senior Assistant Attorney General Jeff Shreslin agreed to produce certain documents pertaining to the case, but there was always a delay and no records have reached our office office to date. Despite that, we were able to obtain some key documents from other sources. Fred must have heard about my trips up north, my meetings with Helena and Maura's mom and sister, because four months later, after I began digging up information on Maura's case, Fred called. He wasted no time and got straight to the point. He was heading up to New Hampshire, and I was welcome to join him. I met Fred at the Wells River Motel in the town of Wells River, Vermont, just over the New Hampshire border. The Wells River Motel is the same motel Fred stayed at during the first search for Maura. Where do you begin when interviewing someone who spends much of his free time looking for his daughter's killer? I didn't need to know where to begin. Fred dove right in. He explained what he was doing that weekend in New Hampshire, what he had done in his last trip, and what the future would bring. He talked about the ongoing court case and liberally shared his criticism and mistrust of New Hampshire law enforcement. One line Fred repeated throughout the day was, it doesn't matter. If you ask what he did for a living or why Maura packed her things or didn't tell anyone where she was headed, he'll just answer, it doesn't matter. We'll never know why she came up here, Fred said. All that matters to Fred is what happened on Wild Emanusak Road. So what really happened to Maura? I'm as puzzled as most of you. I don't think it's much of a leap to dismiss the suicide theory so favored by police in the immediate aftermath of the incident. Why did Maura bring her cell phone charger, birth control, insurance forms, or school textbooks? Why would she have called a condo resort in Bartlett, New Hampshire, just before leaving? A phone call that was not investigated by police for nearly a year. Moore was not driving aimlessly. She had some sort of plan, a destination. No doubt something was going on in Moore's life. 
Maybe she was unhappy or confused. Perhaps she was pregnant or preparing to drop out of school. There were certainly some issues with her relationship with her boyfriend, perhaps more than have been reported. Friends have described Moore as a private person, and it is obvious she was a high achiever. Maybe she just wanted to get away, as some of her friends suggest. It is strange that Moore did not tell even her boyfriend, Billy, where she was headed. Maybe, maybe she did. But then again, Moore did attempt to reach Billy by phone and email on the Monday she disappeared. It's also strange that Moore brought so much alcohol before her trip. Bottles of vodka, Kahlua, and Bailey's Irish cream, none of which were found in her car. Where did the bottles go? Quick aside, they released the receipt of uh, the receipt of the liquor store. Did you know that? Some of it is redacted, like they care about some of the bottles of wine, but there is a timestamp on it, and so the and the time there's there's another. It's a little earlier than they thought, so some people think after she got the alcohol, she went back to her dorm and then to pack more and then left. So that could explain some of the missing time from yeah. the ATM as well. Yeah. But anyway, there's something weird with the alcohol going on. It's like the police don't want anybody to know exactly. Or 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 Cecil just lifted it from the vehicle, and they didn't they didn't want they didn't want to say that it was there because he wanted some extra alcohol. So many so many rabbit holes. Okay, none of which were found in her car relating to the bottles of vodka, Kahlua, and Bailey's Irish cream. They could have been stolen. More could have been... Oh, wait, so if the drunk policeman driving in the wrong car caused her to crash, and then she ran away, and then he went and sat in her car and drank, <laughs> drank, drank half the bottles, and then when the guy came with the other cruiser or whatever, said, oh my god, you drank half the evidence, they would have to take the bottles, switch cars, take him home, the other and guy redact would, the receipt and with redact the bottles. the receipt with the bottles. It does make sense. I'm not saying that's what happened, but that does make sense. <laughs> Maura could have made a stop before reaching the snowbank in Woodsville, or she could have brought these bottles with her to wherever she was headed. Was Maura meeting someone? Was she simply treating herself to a mudslide of beverage made of vodka, coffee, liquor, and Irish cream? Some believe Maura was never at the scene of the Woodsville accident. Now we're getting somewhere. Investigators who attempted to reconstruct the accident say the damage to Maura's car was not caused by the snowbank on Wild and Manusac Road, where her car was found. According to Atwood, who apparently spoke with Maura that evening, Mora had her hair down. Interestingly, Atwood later told a family member that Mora did not look like the pictures running in newspapers. Oh, wow. Atwood clarified in our interview that the woman he spoke with did look like the pictures on the missing person signs, though it is worth noting that he and Mora remained 15 to 20 feet apart throughout their conversation, and the encounter was past dusk. All right, hold on. So I do have to point out, if you look at the footage from the ATM machine, her hair is up and it's clipped up. Yep. Okay? And she's wearing the white coat that her sister said that she didn't recognize. Yes. Then, if you go to the car and you get the transcript or whatever, the itinerary of what's in the car, there are no hair clips. Butch Atwood said her hair is down. And then his description and the police release a description for a girl with a black coat, which is opposite of what was said in but, her, but, and was the original Bolo is correct, though, with her height. And then yes. the second one is incorrect. Yes. It's, so, yes. See, it's all strange. Wrong color jacket, hair yeah. down. <laughs> and, then, and then if he says, so think about it. If she goes to the ATM, she has a white jacket, her hair's up. And then just say, hypothetically, it's somebody else or up there. 
the, it's going to be the wrong height, it's going to be the hair down, and it's going to be a different color jacket. Yeah. Max, what would you think? Oh, okay, okay, I got one. Okay, this is this is far-reaching, but we, we have to throw everything out there. We have to throw everything out there. What if the red truck... All right, now, if the red truck, say it was following her and they were her friends, or say they were following her to kidnap her, what if a girl who was shorter, 5'4", or whatever, or whatever it was, with hair down and a dark jacket, what if that girl was her friend or her enemy following in the red truck? She stops her car and gets in the red truck and the girl who's in the red truck friend or enemy gets out and starts trying to move it off the road a little bit and butch atwood comes along yeah. and sees the yep. girl who's trying to move it now either that girl could have kidnapped mora or it could be her friend trying to help her escape because if i ask you to help me escape i'm not going to want anybody to see me yep. so they would be like oh quick get in her car and move it and then if someone comes along Either way, if they kidnap me, so or... they're waiting in the red truck while this yeah, while so friend it, is doing it. And, yeah. and the red truck could be a friend or an enemy, because if the red truck is kidnapping her, you go out there and move it. That way, there won't be any eyewitness footage of Mora. We'll say she was never there. Or if it's a friend, you go move it because yeah. no, one, there will be no eyewitness. So that girl could have been the girl that Butch Atwood saw from 20 feet away with her hair down and a black jacket. All right, go on. Fred said there was an empty beer bottle found in Mora's car. I was told by others that the bottle was in the back seat and that the rear driver's side window was open a crack. Perhaps someone was in the back seat of Mora's car at some point. Nearly everyone I have interviewed over the past months suspects foul play. Fred believes Mora may have been drinking while driving as a soda bottle with, with an alcoholic smell was found by Mora's car along with a box of wine found inside the car. <laughs> Mora may have feared a confrontation with police, tried to flee the scene by taking a ride from a passing motorist. One detail I have not been able to wrap my mind around is the rag Officer Sim Cecil Smith found stuffed in the Saturn's tailpipe. I heard one interesting uh, theory on that that I hadn't heard before. If it was Mora or someone other than Mora, and they were drunk, and they got stopped, and they stuffed a rag in the tailpipe, they could have been like, it wasn't my drunk driving that caused this accident. Someone stuffed a rag in the tailpipe, and the car malfunctioned because of it. I don't know. Yeah, but but if you're drunk, you're drunk anyway. But didn't didn't they say that her father had yes, told her? Yes, yes, yes. So that's, and he admitted that, right? Yes. So that's kind of so. If she's thinking, like, what if her car starts? No, but if it wasn't her, though. So oh, if it was her friend, her. I don't know. I'm just saying. Yeah. All right. One detail I have not. Okay, so the rag stuffed in the Saturn's tailpipe. Even stranger is that the rag was from Mora's trunk. Some people assume the rag indicates a suicide attempt, while Fred believes Mora was tending to her rickety car. Maybe there's another explanation. Mora could have broken down earlier and received the help of a stranger. She may have opened her trunk to access her emergency kit and the stranger snuck the rag from the trunk and stuck it in her tailpipe without her realizing. Considering search dogs lost Mora's scent in the center of Wild Emanusak Road, it is quite possible she got into a passing car. Why would Mora get into a stranger's car? Maybe she knew the person driving by. Maybe the person appeared harmless, perhaps trustworthy even. Perhaps Mora was unconscious or forced into a passing vehicle. Odds may be slim that a passerby happens to be a murderer, but Mora could have been followed from a rest area or a gas station. Her gas tank was nearly full. Okay, but all right, I, I still have to go back to the rag. If she crashes, if she steers off the road, if, if a drunk policeman in a cruiser hits her, whatever it is, it, all right, not the policeman, but if you, all of my friends who have, like, beaters and who have problems with the cops stopping them, if they 
are stopped or their car breaks down, they stuff something in the tailpipe so that if the cops come and the cops like, oh, start the car, billows of smoke don't come out of the tailpipe and they don't get in trouble for a, a smoking car. Because uh, our friend, uh, remember the friend who we were going to have a, as a guest speaker? Yes. <laughs> he, he, he sold a car. And, and took a potato and put a potato up the tailpipe because the uh, there was so much smoke coming out that he couldn't, when he went to exchange it you with You told them, the story on yeah, the podcast. Yeah, so, so whenever they're afraid that the police are going to see a lot of smoke or if the police are going to come, they do that. So if Maura was alongside the road waiting for assistance, she might have stuffed it in there so that when the cops came and she had to start it up, there wouldn't be all this billowing smoke coming out of the tailpipe. And her father did tell her to do it. Many residents in the Woodsville area own police scanners, leaving some to theorize that Morris accident or the mysterious 7 p.m. accident caught the attention of someone with nefarious intentions. <laughs> Theories abound about suspects living in the woods near the accident scene. This is not the forum to toss out names of potential suspects without evidence. Sure. If you sit in a room with Fred Murray, you will easily walk away with a list of five or six suspects, basically the underbelly of Haverhill society. I want to know who they are. It's probably the brothers that own the truck, the okay. Moon Mountain 3, and then the, the guy who was convi uh, convicted of impersonating a police officer. But do they in live the in the woods? They live on that street within a block. Oh, but not in the woods, like... Well, the whole area is woods, so I guess that's what they're saying. Uh, it sounded like a tent city. I was, I was like, alright, go on. While covering this story, I found many sources mistrustful of police and hopeful that media involvement would shed light on the truth, while others were protective of the police investigation, believing I could interfere with future prosecution. I was also cautioned to not aggravate Fred's relationship with police, although this warning never came from Fred. In the beginning, I was not sure why I was writing this story. After unveiling new information, encountering the bureaucracies of New Hampshire law enforcement, and witnessing a father's pain and determination, particularly his ongoing court battle, it was clear that Mora's story is very much alive and wanting to be told. All right, so that's the article. I, 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 I have seen terrible to ask, but well, I don't know if it's terrible or not. But, but how how long do you go before you think? about your other children and and you let it go you know what i mean like it but i'm being sincere uh, you never they, you never let it go no yeah i know but there's other children and and they're getting neglected and and he can't be the father to them and then he's gonna die and they're gonna feel like well i don't think any of them the any of them years. lived with him so yeah i know but like i mean that's that, that, uh, only more lived with him nobody lived with no him. nobody lived with him but i mean like at this point you know Laura lived at the dorms that you met. Oh no, well, no. What I mean is like, like no, but they, she grew up with him, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay, well, they, okay, they, yeah, he raised all of them. Though, but I mean, ah, it's, it's rough because I'm thinking he's not gonna. And we're going, we're going to New Hampshire, so it's the mind shockers. Now, now for new, new stuff, are you gonna tell us anything new? Right, hold one, on. Or are we gonna wait till the next one? Next one. All right. All right. Hold on. So there was also another part of the article called "Return of the Valley Serial Killer." Between 1981 and 1987, six women were killed in Connecticut River Valley. Similarities in the murders have led locals to believe a serial killer was responsible, dubbed the Valley Killer. The body of Mary Elizabeth Critchley, 37, was found in Unity, New Hampshire in 1981. Nurse's aide Bernice Cordemanche, 17, was found in Newport, 
New Hampshire in 1986. That same year, Ellen Freed, 27, a nurse, was also found in Newport, New Hampshire. In 1986, the body of Eva Morse, 27, was found in Unity, New Hampshire, 500 feet from where Critchley's body was found. The body of Linda Moore, 36, was found in 1986 in Westminster, Vermont, and Barbara Agnew, another nurse, was killed in 1987 and found in Heartland, Vermont. In 1988, Jane Borowski, 22, was stabbed 27 times in West Swansea, New Hampshire, but managed to survive. Oh my Nearly God. all of the women's deaths were reported as caused by knife wounds. Following the disappearances of Maura Murray and Brianna Maitland, some have speculated that the serial killer may have returned. There is no evidence linking the incidents, so such talk is just that speculation. How close is the Vermont to the New Hampshire where Maura disappeared? Does it say? So, this is the Connecticut River Valley, so Woodsville is right here. I mean, maybe not super close. But not tremendously far either. Westminster. Well, it also says there's 13 people currently missing from Vermont and New Hampshire. Mm. Investigation of these 13 show possible links of foul play. Mm -hmm. So a lot of unknown stuff going on. It's crazy. Uh, Alright, so this was kind of an A to Z restructuring of the entire case, so this, ep this, this podcast was a little long, wow. but you can also see the differences between the first article, more recent, and then this article, the mm -hmm. original, where certain names weren't named, now we know the names. Mm -hmm. Now the ATM has been released. So a lot of new things have come out in the case, so it's interesting to see the progression. Yeah. It's so hard because we don't know what are red herrings, because since we don't have the, the end... We don't know what are false alerts. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like what if we waited all these years for the ATM, thinking that that might tell us something? What if, what if she left the ATM machine, went back to drop the alcohol off at the dorm, and then never left the dorm, and somebody else drove up there? I mean, you know what I mean? We don't know what's relevant and what's not. This is rough. Yeah, oh, it's killing me. So, any thoughts, Maxwell? Now you got it from A to Z, so you know all the details of the whole case. It's, it's rough. You know, you know something. I'm, I, I might have to go back all the way back to my white slave ring <laughs> conspiracy theory. Uh, it's terrible. I, I still want to know. I'm burnt out. I don't know. I'm just gonna. Well, it's I'm it's. Just, it's I, I can't even follow it. It's like, rough. Just so much. I still want to know what the connection with her her sister crying because I still feel that that. Per, uh, pertinent information that's one missing of, that we need. One of the uh, one of our commenters mentioned on the last podcast. That, oh, uh, I have some information. Go on, go on, go on. One of the one of our commenters mentioned we we brought this up. I think episode one or episode two that uh, there was a theory that uh, Julie had an affair with Billy, her older uh. sister, and that's why she's saying my sister because either her other sister told her or she found out somehow because. Mm -hmm. Julie and Billy know each other from West Point, okay. and I'm not sure if Julie was the one who introduced her to Billy, but oh, some, some people were saying if that's the case. Oh, yeah. All right, I, I do have... We some, did discuss that, I believe. I do have some information that I just found out. It, it, maybe everybody knows it, but I didn't know it. Um, the What's the uh, the sister that was so distraught that Maura went to? What was her name? The, Kathleen the, the crazy the one that they Kathleen. met. And did the, yeah, because you remember when in the oxygen special where they interviewed her and they had the prof was it a profiler in the other room watching the video 
Yes. And and when they showed it on the oxygen special, she kept uh, every time they'd ask her a question, she would look up into the corner and she would act yeah. really weird and she was all weird. And then they'd ask her another yeah. question and she'd look up into the corner and and it just made her look like crazy and hiding something yeah. and deceitful. And it was like real. I saw I I saw a podcast where they were interviewing the the girl reporter from the oxygen uh, special. What's her name? Maggie. Yeah, she. They asked her about that sister because apparently everybody was saying that sister knows there's something with that sister. And she said that they, the interviews with her were long and they interviewed her for like hours and that they cut it and cut out long pieces in between. And they, and she goes, if you watch the unedited, she probably didn't look up into the corner for like five, ten minutes at a time, but the way we cut it made her look really, really bad. And she goes, ah. we didn't realize that it made her look bad until we released it. And and I'm like, that's kind of unfair. You they, know knew, they knew what they were doing. I didn't even I didn't even know that they had cut it that much. She goes, oh, we cut it. We had hours and hours of footage, and then we edited yeah, they, it into like a, a five-minute She didn't edit it. The well, well, that's what she said. It. She's like, we had so much footage, and then we edited it into like this little five-minute segment. And she's like, it didn't it didn't look anything like that when you see the actual footage. And I'm like, well, that's now, so now misleading. I think they said that about the police interviews, too. I'm like, that's terrible. Way, there was way more in the yeah, police interviews. Yeah, that's terrible. And they should have released them uncut. That was terrible because that really made me suspect her. Watching that made me really suspect her. Yeah. But what if they didn't cut it and that's a lie to cover that up? Maxwell? Oh, shit. What if there was only five minutes of, of interview and she lied? Oh, we have so much and we just cut it to make her look bad. Well, that wouldn't surprise me either. That's terrible. Oh, now, now I don't believe... I didn't even think of that. Well, you can't believe anybody. No, I know. It's like James Sorry. Renner said, everyone everyone has reason to lie to you. Oh my God. Including James Renner. I know. You guys can't park here for the vigil. And then we're going to press charges on the father because he's trying to find his daughter. This is the Westmans, yeah. I'm kind of mad at them. Yeah. Were they outside with the car? Yeah, because you know they were. You know that two of them went outside. Well, anyway, we got, we got more news coming in the next podcast. <laughs> There's so, another one? Yeah. All right. Well, have a good night, everyone. It's Bruce McGuire. It's Brooke Davis. I'm Ashley Powell.